Since you've been gone, since you when I feel like I've been chewing on tinfoil. Since you've been gone, it's like I got a great big mouthful of cod liver oil. Well, I'm feeling like I stuck my hand inside a blender and turned it on. You know I've been in a buttload of pain since you've been gone. Well, since you've been gone. Since you've been gone, I couldn't feel any worse if you dropped a two-ton bowling ball on my toes. Since you've been gone, it couldn't hurt anymore if you shoved a red-hot cactus up my nose. Yep, yep, to be down, bop, bop, do a doom, bop, a down, bop, a Since you've been gone, well, it feels like I'm getting tetanus shots every day. Since you've been gone, it's like I got an ice cream headache that won't go away. Ever since the day you left me, I've been so miserable, my dear. I feel almost as bad as I did when you were still here. All right, this is what what number episode are we on? Episode eight. Episode eight of is it really episode eight? I thought it was episode six. No, it's episode eight. Episode 8 of A Possibility of Opinions. I'm your host, Joanna. And Joanna can't count. I'm and I your can't host, count. Dylan. Yeah, that's Dylan. Okay, so are we... We're starting with mailbag, right? Well, well, I think what we should start with is saying, hello. We hello. have not been here. We haven't been here. In quite some time. In quite some time. Yeah, we are back. It's, uh, we are recording this on June 30th. So it's we the are 30th technically, of June. We are technically... Recording a June episode after having skipped both in April and a May episode. No, but we always record the month before, so we're technically recording a July episode instead of an August episode right now. We don't always record the month before. Some we of you always do. Are you sure? I'm sure. You mean for release the? For the release the following month, yeah. I'd have to look it up. I bet there, I think there was at least one time where we recorded. In fact, I think with the last episode, we recorded early in. I the think month? recorded in March and released it in March. Oh, because we recorded. Um, well, that's not good. Yeah, anyway, whatever. Um, yes, so it has been, but that was like early in March, so it's been it's like. It's been a while. It, two, three, is that two and a half months? Three and a half too months? Too long. It's been too long. It's three and a half Where months. Where have you been? Yes. We've missed you. Uh, but before we, we get into where we've been and why this took so long, we thought we'd go into the mailbag. Mailbag. It was really unfortunate timing that we had the first mailbags, uh, mailbags, <laughs> the first <laughs> letters Mails, if you will, from someone who was not my mom, <laughs> and then we didn't record for a bazillion years. For a bazillion years, so there's actually uh, a bunch of them. So our our loyal listener James emailed James. us in early March. Hi James. I think we may have already covered these ones, but then we're not sure if we did or not. So, so we're, we're recovering anyway. them, and James deserves the extra love. Yes, so it's all he's good. Great. So uh, his first email was titled "OMG," and he said. Why did you guys do that? And when I first got this email, I was like, I'm confused. But then I went back and listened to the episode. And apparently at one point we were like, oh, and you know, this is not going to make sense. And people are going to say, OMG, why did you guys do that? He then continues, actually, having been a few days since I listened, I now can't remember what it was you did, only that I had to ask this question. It was probably something dumb, dumb, dumb. I'm sure this is correct. Wait, but so... What did we say that people were? I don't say? remember. Yeah, because I, I went and looked either. it up. But as you said, so we don't know. If you want to find out, go back and listen is there to software episode... that automatically transcribes stuff. Like, 
There must be. There is, but you generally have to train it to people's voice, right? If you just start it, it's going to be pretty. Google can do it with voicemail. Meh. I mean, inconsistently. Wait, I'm sorry. Are you talking about voice to text? Yes. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, I mean, there is software. It's, I think it's better. If, at least historically, you have to train it to your voice um, to, for maximum results. Okay. Um, why, why is this a question? Because it would be easier to look something up if we had the, a transcript of the oh, podcast. You're, that's true. Uh, so then on another email, uh, again from early March, James wrote us saying, Episode 6 resonated with me for a few reasons. You guys are going to play a hat in time in Human Fall Flat? First off, OMG! I finished two games before Dylan has even played them. Second, they are both awesomely good fun. It's worth knowing that we have not yet played either of these games. Which games? A Hat in Time and Humans Fall Flat. They are both on our longer to play. We should do that. We we definitely want to play them, and when we do, we'll get back to on them. For sure. Um, He says, yeah, they are both awesomely good fun. He said, A Hat in Time looks lovely, and it's cute as hell. The soundtrack really stands out, and I had it stuck in my head for weeks. Co-op mode was a late addition that was luckily already there by the time I picked it up. Be aware, be aware that it defaults to sharing the same screen, which is unbearable. Probably doubly so if you're playing with Joanna, so be sure to change that. <laughs> it's true, right? Because if you're, like, sharing the same screen and she, like, wanders away and is, like, pulling the camera towards, like, a corner where she's, like, standing and, like, staring at a wall or something. Yeah, yeah. very typical. Um, he said, I discovered the game after being appalled at the so-called co-op mode in ukulele. It's just a joke, and besides that, it plays a little too much like a 90s 3D platformer and that the move, movement mechanics are just as bad. I left Kayla to play it by herself. Um, Kayla is his daughter. Back to A Hat in Time, I didn't realize until the end that it had been crowdfunded. That is quite an achievement. I've also finished the seal part of the seal the deal. Sorry, the seal the... I'm going to start this again. <laughs> I've also finished the seal part of the seal the deal. I can't read I've also... <laughs> you got this. I, I know you can do this. But you'll see why it's hard to okay, say this. Okay, finish the seal I, part of the seal the deal. I've also finished the seal part of the seal the deal DLC. DLC. Two, which is worth the extra. Say seal the deal DLC ten times fast. Seal the deal DLC. Seal the deal DLC. But you should tell everybody what DLC is. Yeah, uh, downloadable content, uh, as in like little downloadable expansions. Yes, the, you, DLC is by definition not something that ships with the game. Yes. You get it afterwards, and it's also not enough to constitute an expansion, usually. Well, historically that's true, but they no longer sell like physical expansion packs. So even expansions are called DLC now. It's I remember when they sold physical expansion right. packs and had boxes. Right. That was I think, so I, nice. Right. I think like The Sims might sell. I don't even know if The Sims 4 no. is, is probably. No. Yeah. I mean, if you go to like a Target, you can see old ones that right. are just still, you know, like yeah, you can like buy nothing, the boxes. Yeah, no physical expansion. But do you anymore. remember when they had the big boxes? Yeah. And I'm making a hand motion here that you can't see. Yeah. But the not, you the guys large, The mean. large boxes. And let me tell you the story about the large boxes, right? So yeah. there were these really big uh boxes which are sort of the size of maybe a small board medium-sized board game for those who yeah are, are too young to remember going to computer game stores um and they were big even though the games didn't really need to well at one point they were like three and a half uh inch floppies or not not three and a half what's the bigger one um five 4.7 yeah. five and a half or something 5.25 I think. yeah um so they were like big floppy disks and you needed a certain amount of space but mostly it was just for marketing, right? It was for yeah. having shelf presence and having cover art and having blurbs and whatever. And that was all fine. And one thing that started happening is that as console games got bigger, I mean, Super Nintendo games were in much smaller boxes. And then, like, the PlayStation started really taking off, and you had boxes the size of that were literally just jewel cases, right? 
Yeah. And so one thing that happened is that for a game store, it was much more shelf efficient to have all you know tons of playstation games for like the size of one big pc yeah game. absolutely and so there was sort of a push and the industry was like oh crap they're gonna like just knock us off the shelves we need to all agree to have smaller boxes size but they need to get everyone to agree to it right because if only some people had small boxes then the large boxes would dominate and as was characteristic of the late 90s early 2000s everyone agreed except for microsoft and microsoft was like no we want our big boxes which was kind of silly because they didn't even do that much pc gaming but finally they they you know, after a couple of years, they're like, okay, fine, you're right. And so then there were all small boxes. And then a couple of years later, the GameStops and Electronic Boutiques of the World basically got rid of all the PC games anyway, because they decided that PC gaming was dead. And they were wrong. And now GameStop, GameStop is really uh, struggling. Yeah, you know, I will say about big box PC games, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately, because if you look at what they call book Twitter or book Tumblr, but basically you know, media or a community on the internet that's about reading. Um, a lot of it, I'll ask before, but Let me tell you what I'm going to say. Is it, um, shit, Dragon. Draken. Draken. Draken Order of the Flame. It is not a great game by any metric other than the fact that I love it, and that's basically it. Um, but I bought that game in the big box, right? And you and, bought it for the cover art? Uh, I didn't buy it for the cover art. Actually, this is one of those rare instances where I played the demo and I liked the demo, and I went out and bought the game, but... Demos are also things that most games don't have anymore. I know, it's, it's sad. Well, um, but one of the things that is remarkable about that experience is I can tell you that um, every time I looked at the box, I got very, very excited in a way that I don't from buying games now. Even yeah. if it's a game I'm really excited about, the, that box, like, there's a part of me that wants to find out if I can go on eBay and buy the empty box just because looking at it gives me so, so much So the answer pleasure. is that, yes, you can, and we can, we can look into I that. I don't know whether it's someone selling it, though. I you know? can promise you that they are. Um, but that, um, like, idea, right? And there was, like, I remember this big box had, like, a cover that opened a little bit, and you could see, yes. Sorry, sorry, Joanna, pause. I was pointing at my big game boxes that have a cover that opens a little bit. Yes, um, and, and it, you know... All of which is to say that in some ways, there are some things about PC gaming that have died, right? And one of them is, you know, um, uh, another example would be, I remember when The Sims 2 came out, and I actually, as I might have mentioned before, I think The Sims 3 is sort of the one that's been the standout Sims edition for me. But when The Sims, Sims 2 was a step up. Still. The Sims 2 was a major step up. One of the things they introduced in that was a genetic system, right? right. So that the babies looked like the parents and whatnot. And then you started having things and the like graphics plant people. Were advanced, and, yeah. and yeah. it was all kinds of um, interesting stuff. But also, it was the first time, right? Because The Sims 1 had been around forever, and I hadn't... Nobody had really thought about Sims 2. So the whole notion of it was very exciting. I would like to interject one point, which is that if my memory serves, Sims definitely comes out in 2000. I believe The Sims 2 comes out in either 2003 or 2004. So, but when you're 14 or 15, yeah. that's forever. Right. Yeah. Um, and also, it just hadn't occurred to me that they wouldn't just continue putting out expansions forever, that there would be a <laughs> Sims 2, right? And so the whole notion was so exciting, right? And it was close enough to my birthday that, you know, all of my friends shipped in and they all bought me, like, you know, $10, $5, $12 um, GameStop gift cards, right? And I, I don't... I think the magic number at that time was $50, right? For a, for a new PC game. I think it was maybe... 
I think it was 40 at that point. You think it had just it jumped? 50. It probably, I think, I think EA was pushing it for The Sims 2. Yeah. It was a big release. Yeah. Um, and so we went, uh, you know, so, oh, so, so all my friends chipped in and bought GameStop gift cards at whatever amount of money that they happened to have on hand. And we went, you know, some of them slept over. And the next day we went to GameStop. Um, and uh, I remember specifically that there, I had one other friend who was super into The Sims and she bought the guide, you know, and I got the game. Um, and we, it was just like this moment of um, game-related camaraderie, the kind of which you wouldn't find anymore no. because you don't even go to physical stores now. Right. And if you want to gift somebody something, you still can, but it doesn't have that exciting feel. Yeah, you know? yeah. And, and w- I have a question, which was, was this like an all-female friend group that did this? Yes. You? Okay. Where'd Maybe. You- I mean, certainly all of the people who slept over yeah, were okay. women. Um, <laughs> I'll give you that. It just makes me that The Sims, like, was notable for having, like, a really strong female demographic in a way that, that few games since. Well, yeah, you know, and I think that it's it both— It was, um, like, a real crossover hit. Like, people who did not self-identify as gamers, like, played the crap out of the Yes, Sims. but I—you know, I think that that game has both, you know, um, uh, been praised and also uh, been stigmatized because of that exact thing. There yeah. are a lot of people who are like, oh— the Sims is a girl game. It doesn't count, right? Well, but so what's interesting so is that that was definitely a latter day um, thing because, like, in say the year two thousand, right? The PC Gamer magazine, which was like probably the most authoritative, they were like Sims Game of the Year, and their editorial staff was ninety percent men, exactly as you would expect, right? Because they were just like, this game is innovative and awesome and wonderful. So that was definitely that was definitely yeah. The although I would like to mention for the record that in fact the Sims three with its with the way it manages yes. time far outdid sims 1 sims 2 and sims 4 yeah so, but, but to be fair in my opinion right my... right the sims 3 is like i totally buy it's a better game but it also is able to do that because it is able to build off of those games right whereas the sims there was nothing like it when it came out that's true and i will say that although many of his games have not been hits and i didn't personally love when when i look at what will Wright, that's his name right will yes. Wright is doing with gaming or his ideas about gaming, they align very closely to what I think about what I want when I game. Yeah, right. Will, and will so, write. Will write is one of those people that it's it is as far as anyone can tell, nobody in the history of gaming has said anything about about him either as a designer or as a human being. Yeah, um, I mean, like you heard that story. Remember the Double Fine story? No, tell me. This was the one where um, Double Fine, which is Tim Schafer's company, was making their first game, uh, Psychonauts. And um, they had just gotten canceled by their publisher. I think it was Microsoft actually at the time. And they're like, we don't think it's going to work. We're pulling funding. And they're, we're going to maybe not pay, make paycheck and not be able to finish their game. And Tim Schafer was just at the end of this rope. Uh, and so as a last resort, he called up, you know, a sort of loose acquaintance, Will Wright. And he said, um, hey, Will, you know, we... I know it's kind of a big ass, but we're thinking like we really need money. Do you want to like buy a portion of the company, you know, and we can sell you like some shares and then we can use that money to finish this game. And Will Wright's like, let me talk to my, you know, let me talk to my people, my finance people. And he came back and he says, yeah, my finance people say I kind of, it's not good for me to own portfolios. So I'll just loan you the money. And he just gave him the money and they finished Psychonauts and Double Fine is still in operation today. Yes. And that story was was not known until about two years ago when 
Tim Schafer got somewhat drunk at the Game Developers Conference, you know, after he got his Lifetime Achievement Award at the Game Developers Conference, and so he was like, you know, I'm getting this award, but really we could not have done this all without World Wright because he's so awesome. Yes. Um, I will say, I, I mean, I like, so I've been into Will Wright's notions of what gaming are, gaming is and how it works and like his goals for a long time. Um, uh, I would say that in terms of his actual output, his product, yeah. for me personally, um, hit or miss, right? Yeah. Well, but well, I'm always going to be for most into his too. projects. You right. Know? That, that he just put things out, Sim Earth, Sim Ant, Sim Isle, you know? And there are different things for different people. Some people are like, there's one game called Sim Golf, which was Will Wright and Sid My Year. And some people are like, this is like the best golfing game ever made. Because the whole idea was like you designed golf courses and then you played the golf courses. And it was like both of them. Yeah, anyway. It's cool. Um, Big box games is what we were talking but the about. Way, but, but, he, but anyways, Will Wright has been sort of stand out for me personally in terms of the way he articulates his thoughts about what gaming is and what it can do. And so one of the things I haven't looked up but would be very interesting to me would be his thoughts on virtual reality, right? Yeah. And like where he sits with that and what he thinks. Yeah, is he, possible. he definitely keeps a very low profile these days. Um, so I, yeah, that maybe maybe a future episode. The current writings of Will Wright. Anyway, back to a hat in time. I didn't realize until the end that it had been crowdfunded. That is quite an achievement. I've also finished the seal part of the sealed deal DLC, which is worth the extra. The deal part is sadly single player only but probably because co-op would make it unfair. It's stupidly hard, though, and when people complain, they added this really patronizing sequence that plays before each challenge switches to an easier mode. That's really my only criticism. I will also say for the developers that the Seal the, de- seal the, the deal. deal DLC was uh, free to everyone who already owned the game. So it was one of those things where they said, if you own this game or if you buy it in the next couple of weeks, it's free, right? And you only yeah. have to pay for it if it's like, you know. And, and it was nice because that came out like a, one or two years. He says, uh, I love Humans Fall Flat because it's remarkably open-ended for what is essentially a puzzle game. You can solve the puzzles in slightly different ways. It just needs a bit of ingenuity and imagination. The physics feel spot on, which is essential for a game like this. When playing in co-op, you do feel a strong bond with your partner, although that may depend on who you're playing with, winky face. So Kayla and I are always on the lookout for good multiplayer games, especially local multiplayer, as paying for two copies can get expensive and her laptop is a little weak. Following your podcast, we decided to check out, drumroll, Overcooked 2. Joanna is right. It is very stressful. And I honestly didn't think Kayla was going to be able to handle it as she can quickly melt down when overwhelmed. There was one brief moment in the beginning where I thought I'd just gone and wasted 20 pounds, but she took a deep breath, said she was okay, before insisted we give it another try. She's since become quite the sous chef. Did nice. you say it? Sous chef? Good job, Kayla. Good job, Kayla. Uh, uh, Legend of Mana or Legend of Mama, as we like to call it, because of the similarity with Mama's real name. I don't recall seeing a multiplayer RPG like this before, so I thought it was worth a try. I had heard of it, but it was never released over here, so I had no idea what it's like. My first impressions are actually kind of meh. It looks nice, but I don't think I have the patience for 90s JRPGs these days, especially not one as complicated as this. The battles just feel like button mashing so far, although we beat the first boss in no time. Meanwhile, the story seems very slow and uncompelling. I hope it picks up soon. I'm sure it didn't get good reviews for nothing. I will say for Legend of Mana that it is unusual in JRPGs and that there is not really a central save the world plot. And it's entirely, it's a game that's 100% character oriented side quests. Pretty yeah, much. Yeah, so. I picked up a game that I think is kind of similar. Um, I can't remember what it's called and I started playing it. 
And I lost in trust like five minutes in, and I haven't reloaded it again. It um, wasn't East Shade. No, but the point of it was that it was it was an RPG for people who preferred. It was East Shade. Yes. Oh my god. Yes, it was. I the point of it was just an RPG for people who preferred like the side quests and yeah. the wandering around, yeah. and not the. But Joanna, you can't. You can't give a game five minutes. You can't give a book five. I mean, you can do what you want, obviously, right? But. But if you spend, you know, you put down money on something with a real intent to play it, you have to give it an hour minimum. And I would say two or three. I mean, just just realistically, because, like, you don't – games take time to unfurl. And there are lots of great – this came up with a discussion of a game called The Outer Wilds recently, which, like, intentionally doesn't have, like, pop-up tutorials. And that's – you're doing that one for Game Club. And uh, yeah, sorry. I'll get that in a second. But, like, some games take times to unfurl for good reasons, and they may be – front load a little bit of pain or discomfort in the first 30 minutes in order to create a better next 10 hours. No, I, don't, I haven't played Eshade. Eshade may not be that game, right? But I feel like you have to give it a shot. Yeah, it's possible. But, I mean, there's an argument for the other side too, right? Which is that, you know, um, a good game, you shouldn't have to have a half hour, an hour of shitty gaming to get into. I, so, in general, I agree with that argument. But the fact of the matter is that all games at some level require learning things and often the experience of not knowing what you're doing or not having context for the world is inherently unpleasant and yeah the and the best way to not have that experience is to either have the game tell you things really obviously or to simplify things enough that you don't really have that i experience. i agree with you i think that um also there are some kinds of games that you kind of except when you start especially simulation games often that there's going to be a wide range of controls that you don't understand when you start the game um but i think that the game therefore has a certain amount of responsibility to be sufficiently interesting such that it overcomes you you feel like there's something okay right and i think that that's i think that that at least is analogous to all thresholds right like and so um you know no, I'm not saying that I'm right about Eshade. I could be very wrong. And certainly it's true that I have in my life been like, oh, this game sucks, and then come back to it later and played it for a little bit more and being like, oh, just kidding. I actually like this game a lot. Yeah. So it also depends on the state of mind that I'm in. Yeah. If I say I played it for five minutes and I put it down, it doesn't necessarily mean I will never open yeah. it again. Yesterday I played about 20 minutes of Farm Together, and I thought it was you know solidly mediocre, and I stopped playing. That's is this, is this like a free-to-play game? No, Farm Together is it's on Steam and it's pretty well reviewed. It's a multiplayer. Stop buying Steam games, Joanna. You it's have a so multiplayer, many multiplayer. Um, it's a multiplayer. It's a multiplayer. It's multiplayer. It's multiplayer. Um, farming game. Um, but it's not. It's you know, it's the kind of multiplayer that you would expect me to play, right? Where it's single player with other people around, right? So, yeah. so that like that's. Um, so I picked it up just because it seemed like a cool. It seemed like something that would be relevant to my um, uh, interests, and the graphics are really adorable. Yeah. So that, for those two reasons, you know. Um, but the tutorial, I know this is a very weird thing to say, but the, the tutorial is extremely lonely because you're on this little plot of land that mm-hmm. seems to be alone in the universe, and, like, the sun sets every 10 minutes, and it's just, like, it's kind of eerie. Um, but, you know, it's the sort of thing where it's like, okay, I don't, I don't have the patience to sit here in this, like, forever sunsetting by itself location right. but ultimately well, I, I, I would say that, that 
two things back to the digital download conversation we have. So one is that I want to play East Shade. So one thing we've lost is historically, I could be like, Joanna, you don't like East Shade. Can I have your copy of East Shade? And you could be like, sure. And then I could play and enjoy it. But we can't do that anymore. Um, Steam family sharing aside. Yeah. Um, the second thing I would say is that one thing that was, you know, this is one of those things where old people get nostalgic and are like, oh, it was so great when we had to walk like five miles to school every day because they built character and it's like actually it kind of sucked, right? Along the same lines, I will say that there, it is awesome. It is definitely net better that we have all these games at our fingertips and so many to play and we can like download them with a click of a button. But what was nice is that when you had to go to the store and buy a game and bring it home, it forced you to give it a certain amount of effort because you didn't, like it was that or not play a video game, right? You didn't have another video game on hand. Whereas now it's easy to bounce off things in five minutes because you do have like 93 other things to play, right? And so like, again, I think that's a net better, but there's also like a, a side negative to that. Yeah, and I will say I might be wrong about this. Like it might be objectively not true, but the way it feels, if when I was younger, the community that I thought that I was part of when I went out and bought a game was less cynical and less pessimistic and less, you know. That's accurate. You know, uh, whatever, whatever, whatever it is, is that it just, it was just more enjoyable and fun and carefree than it yes, is now. That, um, that is correct on multiple levels and it's probably its own podcast. <laughs> and I wonder if there's a relationship between the models, because the reason why I wonder that is because I experienced the same, the same, well, whatever that word is, the same like relationship between uh, Steam and gaming that I do social media and socializing in the sense that, like, there's something about the virtual-only experience, right, the non-physicality that lends itself to a cynicism and to, uh, you could say the same thing about dating apps and dating, right? There's something about that It's almost, I would almost describe it, I mean, there's cynicism, but more broadly I would almost describe it as anti-humanistic. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, in the sense that, like... The, the humanity is abstracted away. Right, yes. And I don't, you know, I find that, for me, there, that excitement of the, the, the thing, the, the humanistic abs- aspect, there was, for whatever reason, um, was, is vi- was very apparent to me when... You know, I looked at this um, this game that I bought, this Draken game, right? I was actually in Brazil, um, and I bought it in a in a bookstore in Brazil. I found it, and I just the whole I hadn't intended, I had I never expected to be able to find that game after playing the demo. So the fact that I encountered it in the first place, right, yeah. was like the most exciting thing. But then also, you know, looking at that game and thinking about about you know being excited about it. Certainly, part of that excitement was was a feeling of of connection that is very different, and it's weird because, if anything, one might argue that we're more connected today than we used to be, right? But that particular feeling I haven't really felt in a very long time, um, and that's one very explicit memory yeah though i would say that's that at least part of that is also the difference between youth and age right there's a certain sense because there's 
there's when you're young there's so much you don't know and there's sort of almost a a sense of connection in the mystery of joining like an abstract community sure and a lack of responsibility as well right so when you're younger you don't have to deal with you have to deal a lot you have to deal a lot less with carrying the weight of the world in the way that you do when you're an adult but nonetheless what it meant to you know um geez i'm getting really nostalgic here but even just what it meant to be a nerd you know like that was that that whole situation you know maybe some of it has to do with now it's very economically um lucrative to be a nerd nerd, yeah whereas then it wasn't whatever it is yeah you know there's something there you know and and you know basically two instances of that that i recall very clearly in my youth one was finding this game right in the store in brazil and the other was the excitement on my birthday about the sims 2 right like those are instances those are memories that you know are very that are just unequivocally very positive right and that is something that sticks with me so uh i am 31 my co-host is 32 and we are both very old Old, about old ancients <laughs> i mean uh, relative to gaming relative yeah, no, to seriously computers. it makes you feel old yeah we are um i will also say that while it is unfortunate that we could not record a podcast for three months we are making up for lost time at this rate this podcast will be about six hours long well maybe we can split it into two worst case maybe scenario. we'll see um i mean not recording two different times but just the record splitting the total thing into two at the end uh, so we're returning to James's letter. Hi, James. How are you? He's going to be like, oh, my God. I'm like the star of this whole episode. <laughs> I, um, I honestly think he's going to like it. That's what I've decided. I know. That's good. He says, on a completely unrelated note, I always find your discussions of the Jewish community interesting. So everyone knows they like to eat Chinese food on Christmas Day. I didn't. And I actually spent Christmas Day with a Jewish family once. They love to eat bagels. I didn't know that either. But then I was introduced to bagels by that same Jewish family in New York. Dylan knows who I mean. I do. Um, now I grew, grew up on an island where I was not aware of any local Jewish community. Solely attending a Catholic boys school probably had a lot to do with that. As such, I never did pick up on the common Jewish stereotypes, save for what I read in The Merchant of Venice. It therefore really pisses me off that I cannot loudly condemn Israel's behavior without being accused of being anti-Semitic. I don't have a problem with Jews because I barely know anything about them, so how could I possibly be anti-Semitic? When I've had the guts to broach the subject in front of my peers, I find they broadly agree with my own stance in Israel. I did wonder at one point whether I misunderstood Israel's past and perhaps I was judging them too harshly. I then watched a documentary about the creation of the modern Israeli state and only confirmed what I already believed. You may not be aware that the Labour Party in the UK, one of the two main political parties, is currently being torn apart by accusations of anti-Semitism. I'll just note myself that I think this was particularly uh, particularly the, the then leader, Jeremy Corbyn. Um, I'm not a major fan of the party, but it is frustrating to watch them being forced to apologize for what I often find to be quite reasonable statements. There may be some anti-Semitic elements within the party, but probably no more so than you find in any other cross-section of society. Uh, I sometimes ponder what Mila's take on all of this is, especially with her humanitarian background, but we're sadly all but out of touch these days. I don't know, should we even have that part in the podcast? Is that Oof. too much? Oh, it's Mila, uh, the, the, the person he knew from the okay. Jewish family in New York. Um, no, it's cool. I would say this is interesting because I was just having a conversation with my mom about this this morning. Um, mm-hmm. Several interesting points came up with my mom, uh, which need to be discussed not on the podcast. But um, <laughs> uh, but one thing that um, I mentioned and that I think really holds true and is something that everybody should think very re- um, carefully about is that if you're not Jewish and you don't have and your relationship to Israel is entirely a question of what are your politics about 
imperialism or whatever. You should vote your own interests regardless Mm -hmm. of what, you know, don't vote for somebody because they're for Israel. Don't vote somebody for somebody because they're anti-Israel. Vote your interests and don't fucking worry about it, right? Because one, sorry, I swore. Are we not swearing on this podcast? No, that's fine. Um, One thing that I find, um, I think, offensive in principle is this notion that you are responsible for voting on behalf of somebody who isn't you don't worry about it would be my would be my would be my would but, be my but i would i mean i would also say know? that like for instance if you know we'll you're voting for repeating myself for yeah. the american president i mean like for foreign policy is part of their what okay they do. that's fine and like it's certainly true that you're going to have views on foreign policy but i think that the reason that you vote for whoever you vote for would be that the policies and positions that they hold are the ones that closest match what is best for you that is why you should vote gotcha. and not on behalf oh yeah of no but else. but i think a lot of people like foreign policy is secondary right so let's say you have two candidates and both of them equally meet all of your needs and then one of them happens to be pro-Israel, and then one of them happens to be anti-Israel. At that point, you can make a decision based on your foreign policy views. Yeah. I think that for most people, it's going to be kind of secondary, It right? is. Well, Do no, it absolutely is. I mean, loans, one of the complaints about, labor about US, you know. the, the, the United States voter is that because foreign policy is so distant from what people care about, one thing we've learned with the Trump administration is that you can have absolutely just atrocious foreign policy. And it probably won't significantly impact you with voters because it's just not a priority, which is like kind of a hole in democracy, maybe. Well, for, I think for the people who voted for Trump, it was a very serious consideration if you consider immigration to be a part of foreign sure, policy. Sure, sure. But the parts that are like, you know, things like NATO. trade policy, yeah. like nuclear arm, you know, disarmament treaties, which are like actually a pretty big deal, you know. Making sure. everyone there's, in the world piss off question, at you. Yeah. There's a question of how do you gauge and measure what is your interest, right? Yes. So, Certainly I, but that's I, And true. I would say that for some people, I think they have a vested interest in, in human rights in the world. And I think some of that is not just on behalf of others, but that they see themselves in others. You know, this idea that, that to protect my own hu- human rights, I have to advocate for other people's human rights. If I believed that was the underlying motivation for such a vote, then I would wholeheartedly okay. say that's fine. I think by and large, what I'm seeing, and I've, I've talked about this endlessly, yeah. right? This notion of the ally versus the collective and right. so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, and all I'm saying on the subject is, you know, what I would say to, to James and to anybody else who is like, I have problematic feelings when it comes to this issue, is that, don't let that be don't let that be a thing that defines how you think about what you support unless it's actually relevant to your interests because because there are so many things like that in this world you know yeah. israel is one of them right and you um there isn't anybody else in this world really there just isn't who is going to be able to measure your interests the way you are right yeah. and i just one of the things that i'm very suspicious of is is a democracy where the rule, the rule, the moral rule, and the should, the ask, is make sure that whenever you have an opportunity to speak up, it's never on your own behalf. That makes me very nervous, right? And I just, I just like, you know, and so my first thought when somebody says, oh man, this Israel thing is really weird and I don't know what to think about it is, what are you interested in? Yeah. What matters for you, right? 
you know, maybe Israel is it. Like if you're Jewish um, or if you have some relationship to the Middle East or if you have a relative in the military or if, you know, there's a lot of reasons why you might, you know, and then that's fine. But if it's, if somebody has said to you, it's your moral obligation to care about this and to make this a centerpiece for when you think about how to vote, I would say to you, what is that person trying to do to you? Think about it, right? And be free of that burden. You know, think about what matters to you and be able to articulate that well, you know, and be able to articulate why you think it matters. But don't, don't get too caught up in, you know, yeah. s- such that you're, you're really putting yourself in a bad position because, you know, I support fundamentally your right to be your own best advocate. And I think it's really important to do that. Yep. I would say I agree. I agree in principle, though I would probably push back on some of the implications, you know, as people are, it's like, it's like, I agree until it hurts my interest, right? Like, I I think one of the, the holes in that argument is that if, if it's an issue of animal rights or something like that, if you have a group who are literally incapable of advocating for their own interests, then by definition, someone has to advocate for them. Yeah, I mean, I would complicate that a little bit. And I would say, I know it's very metaphysical of me to put it this way but i would say when it comes to people who are in or entities that are incapable of advocating their own this is i have a sim story i can tell you about this my sister once asked me in all sincerity she said joanna when you play the sims on my computer in my room don't be mean to them right (laughs) i love i laugh not just because that's a funny story but because that is like the most sparky thing that has ever been said. She's like, when you're playing on your computer in your room, you can be mean to Sims, but not on mine, right? I love it. I know. And, and you know, at the time, probably like most people, I was like, okay, it's a bunch of pixels and that's very cute, but you're just ridiculous, right? Um, but over the, over the many years, I've had, you know, I've had time to think about this. And I think that like, you know, it's probably true, not that I'm going to stop being sadistic on The Sims. I'm not, certainly not saying that. But, it's, but I think that it's true that uh, the way that we behave towards others uh, affects our own happiness and our own well-being. It's just completely separate from moral obligation and duty, right? Completely separate from a should. There's a relationship there. Um, and w- although my sister would not articulate it that way, I do think that's what she was talking about, right? I think my sister was saying in her own very practical way, you, you know, I don't want to support you being the type of person who has control over something and therefore chooses to be sadistic, right? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a ridiculous example, but it's something that I think about, you know, and it's, it, it speaks to my sister's very practical notions of morality as well. Um, I would also like to point out that the shoe, many years later, the shoe was on the other foot when I killed Joanna's cat in Minecraft, and she was extremely unhappy about in it. In Minecraft. Um, all living cats are fine. Um, <laughs> in Minecraft. Yes, it was in Minecraft. It really was. Um, which I mentioned because I, you probably don't know this, Dylan, but on the, on the internet, there's a joke where whenever you don't want to get banned for some saying something you add in minecraft to the end of it so i just want to be clear that the cat actually did exist in minecraft i guess i was not aware it of that was show. a minecraft cat okay. um but uh yeah so um uh but anyways the long and short of what i'm saying is that like you can make the argument that it's in your own interest to be better in situations like factory farming because it really um does affect you personally completely separate from the notions of what is the moral thing to do here and what is my social duty? 
yeah. I, 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 I mostly agree, and I'm going to leave it at that because I, I'm, tr I'm, I don't, I, I think it would be hilarious to have a six-hour podcast, but we probably don't want that. I, I think if we do end up having a six-hour podcast. We can just have part one and part two. Part one and part two, yeah. Okay. We can record the whole thing today. So and then... that was the end of James's uh, early, second early March letter. I will say, just as a side note, and I think I said this to him personally, like, no, it's not that weird to not know about the Jewish custom of eating Chinese restaurants. Like, it's one of those things where, like, if you know Jew like, if you are If you familiar live in a big American city, you probably know it. Um, well, I would say if you live in a big American city with a substantial Jewish population. There are not. no big American cities without Jewish populations. That, like, it, that's just a thing. If you live I in a big American okay, city. Okay, let me put it this way, Joanna. I lived, I lived. Put it this way, Joanna. No, I mean, seriously. I lived in a big American city. I was born in a big American city. And I lived there until I was, uh, until I went to college, right? And I didn't know about that until I met you. I assume that many people in Seattle do, though. I'm sure many people in Seattle do. It's not a question of what do many people know. It's a question of what do the vast majority of people know, and you're weird for not knowing it. That's right? what I meant. I think the vast majority of people in Seattle probably do know that. I don't think that makes you weird. I don't think it ever makes you weird for literally yeah. not knowing something. I would never phrase it that way. But I do think that if you live in a substantially urban area in the United States, you are much more likely yeah. to know it in, than But don't. in the United States. Yes, where in James the U.S., is, exactly. Where That's what I'm not. saying. Yeah. He's not. So yeah. you wouldn't expect you wouldn't, him to know yeah, that. Yeah. And in fact, I think there are a lot of foreign countries boy, this is sort of grim, but there are a lot of foreign countries where that's the case because, you know, after the Holocaust, Holocaust there, there were, were less no Jews. Jews. So, yeah, right. it just, like, stands to reason. I remember, I remember I, I once had this conversation where you were having this idea of, uh -oh. of going, of taking this um, summer trip to Poland. And I was like, why Poland? What's in Poland? And we were kind of going back and forth as to, like, what was so special about Poland? And I was like, and you were like, and you kind of were like, I think we're getting a slip. And I was like, well, let me tell you what's not in Poland. Mm. Jews. <laughs> because of the Holocaust. And, you know, there's all this history there. And I wouldn't get it. <laughs> yeah, I still do kind of want to do. I like, I would like to hit up Germany and some of the other countries. Yeah. And I think it's because, you know, one of the reasons why, one of the main reasons why I want to go to Germany is actually just to, you know, that's where Arendt's from. And there's a lot of Arendt stuff there. Um, but I also do, I think it's important. You know, I think it's important within my lifetime to visit the concentration camps and not on a tour, not in a way where it's contextualized. As, but just, just see it as a place. Right. To just be there in that place and, you know, to have whatever relationship can you even, with it can I you, have. Are you even allowed to do it outside of a tour? Yeah, I actually know of somebody who got stuck in one overnight. Wow. Can that's you imagine a that That's shit? a horror story. Yeah. I just, I'm like, ooh. Yeah, I had a so when I was at NYU, I had a German friend, and she had a good friend who that occurred to. Ah, uh, um, so I remember. I remember your German friend at NYU. This was the one you were going to show Star, Star Wars, Wars to, too. Yeah, and it and never happened. We're still Facebook friends, but we don't really keep in touch okay. anymore. Anyway, that was the end of the March tenth letter. We're right. like forty-four minutes into the podcast now. I think that's fine. That's fine. No, I I think it's fine. I think it's great. I love how uh, engaged you are. Um. She, Joanna's glaring at me. You know what? She can be like, oh, how dare you? Da, da, da. But let me tell you, we started recording this before noon, and Joanna, for the first time in over a month, insisted that we have beer, right? So I think she needed a little bit oh of lubricant to get this podcast going. Why are you the worst? <laughs> I did not insist. I requested. You requested. I Very requested polite, politely. Politely requested. And I haven't even had a whole beer. I've had like 75, maybe Maybe 45%. Well, guess who has had a whole beer? <laughs> and has had no breakfast. God, I actually should not advertise this on the podcast. Some, some 
I sound like a total wreck like that. You are a total wreck. Where are we going to get food after this? Um, there are many places we can go. Maybe we should look at Mother. We could, Mother would be a good... I don't even know if they're open on Sunday. That would be weird if they weren't. A lot of places are not open on... Yeah, but no, restaurants are... No. Restaurants no. are usually closed Monday, Tuesday. So Sundays. you say that, but you're not... You're thinking of the New York and Chicago, or for that matter, Seattle thing, where there are people... Like, so for a restaurant to be open, there have to be people around, right? For them to go to the restaurant. And in downtown Sacramento, it's such a government town and so has, like, such a historic oh. thing that historically... Because they need they their days they want to be open are tied to the Monday through Friday work week of almost everyone in that area because it's very low residence. Everything's Monday through Friday and most things open on Saturday Sunday. It's because they're open six or seven days a week. Well, we could just go to Aura. There's lots of places. Anyway, side note, but that is one thing I I noticed. I as someone who works on Sunday, I learned very quickly going to work is that you bring your work your food on Sunday because ninety like let me put it this way: Starbucks is closed on the weekend. Right? That's my example. That's so sad. Right. I know. Wow. Many, many employees at the Sacramento Public Library agree with you because they want to go to Starbucks and they can't. <laughs> um, okay, let's let's keep going. Um, his next e- uh, email from April was titled, Arai went awry, or perhaps Ari rent awry, referencing a conversation we had. He said, until last year, I mispronounced Arai. And I qu- felt quite embarrassed when this was noticed by a colleague. I yeah. have, have you also mispronounced that word? Yes. I have also pr- mispronounced that but word. But I can one-up both of you. Um, I pronounced, I thought that chaos and chaos were two I, words that meant the same thing You've for said the this before time. on the podcast. Yes. And I still believe, I still believe <laughs> that archives sounds more like archives than archives does. Archives, to me has the, the feeling of preserved stuff, whereas archives does not. Sound like... So wait, so what are, what are the things that you, like, put on, Archive like, sounds like a kind of onion. Right. So, but I'm saying... Yeah, exactly. So is, is it chi- chive? How do you say it? It's chives, right? Chives, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, but archives, you can actually hear old paper in yeah. that word. Archives. And then, about a week into May, James wrote and asked us, okay, so which one of you killed the other? Because because it's been we a had long done time. a podcast and he's like, what what's happened Poor to James. all these letters? Poor James. I love that we have someone who listens. James to is podcast. what in Scotland? Uh, in I believe I feel terrible saying this. I believe in Scotland. He has for a long time been commuting to England, so sometimes he and sometimes he's like, I think he's been like just south of the border and just north of the border. I actually met uh talked spent some time talking to someone from Glasgow yesterday. Yeah, you told me. Yeah, and I, I was With like, the and they were like, the and I was like, accent. oh, I've been to Glasgow, and they were like, actually a little bit impressed because I think most people they run into in Sacramento have not been to Glasgow, understandably. So um, that was the mailbag, <laughs> and next up to talk about where we've been. So again, we last recorded in early March. Um, so what did you do in March, Joanna? What did I do in March? Yeah. So oh oh okay so. I mean, at the end of the month, I moved to Sacramento, um, California. So that's where Dylan is. And what you're hearing now is um, both of us in the same room. Which I'm sure it turns out has much better audio quality. Um, right. But yeah. Though at least part of that is me learning how to do noise gates and anyway, whatever. Um. So, okay. Wow. Wow. We're like way behind. That, I know. That's why I put this as a big section okay. of podcast. So I moved to Sacramento Um. and I was staying with Dylan for a couple weeks there, a few weeks. Um. Uh, on April 22nd, I started a new job at the uh, California State University, Sacramento in IT. 
And in that position, I liaise between other departments on campus and IT, and I help, I help other departments determine what their needs are. And I'm, you know, we're in the process of launching a new website. We're in the process of, for the whole campus, we're in the process of um, developing what we're calling an IT consulting service where somebody has a problem and they don't know how to solve it and they come to IT and say, help us determine the right solution, right? Mm -hmm. Help us figure this out from ground zero. And another example of something we're doing right now is we're looking at um, what what a form solution might be. So a solution for a department that has a form um, that, you know, right currently is what we call wet signature, which means that you uh, sign it with a pen, you print it out and sign it with a pen and something, and, and some like, very advanced workflow heavy solution. So that's the kind of work I'm doing now. And I bring it up because it's obviously extremely different than public librarianship, which is what I was very yes. clearly doing yes. before now. Um, and so that change has been significant um, and it's reflected significantly on my experience uh, of the world in the sense that like one of the, one of the major things that's come out of this and that I wasn't expecting, but clearly should have, because it's not that hard to figure out is that public librarianship is a very social job. Um, there are, you know, the, you socialize with the public quite often. And most of the time it's positive because most of the time you're yeah. saying, yes, you and, can and have this. And that's and, doubly and, true at branch librarianship. Yeah. Yes, you can have this. And yes, you can have this for free. Right. And yeah. yes, we'll do this for you. It's a very positive social environment. Um, and I myself am, you know, a pretty social human. And so one of the, one of the things that I'm learning about, first of all, um, let me back up a minute and say shortly after getting that job, um, I moved into an apartment in Midtown because Sacramento, while still not being the most affordable place in the country, is still substantially more affordable than New York City. I, it was within my budget and my means to rent out an apartment that for the first time where I lived alone. And um, I will also say for, for those who, of you who don't know Sacramento, which is most of you, Midtown is sort of the sort of hip urban right. you know, area with lots of nice you know, art, arts and restaurants. And parks. You know, right. It's not like you know, McMansions, right? But like where the nice apartments are and stuff like that. Um, and so you know, the location's really nice, but um, living by myself and working in a job that's substantially less social and – um, you know, having a couple of good friends in the area, but that's about it, um, has been a real, uh, a really has been in many ways, very difficult. Um, you know, New York city is built. I mean, it's built on social infrastructure because the rest of it's falling apart. Right. Yeah. So if you want to survive in New York city, you have to, you have to, you know, enjoy the moments when the MTA breaks down and you're forced to have conversations with strangers on the subway. Yeah. Right. You have to, you have to enjoy encountering on you know unexpected social situations because it's part of how you get by in a city like right. new york city that's not true in sacramento um and there are definite upsides to it there are definite upsides to living alone um there are significant downsides as well one of the things i did to sort of bridge that gap a little bit is acquire a cat whose name is george um George is like the best cat on the planet. I'm really convinced of this. I am not convinced of this. I, but I say this as someone who loves George. But you're wrong because George is in fact the best cat on the planet. You know, I've But you realize there's like about like 100,000 other people Yeah, but George just... is actually the best <laughs> okay. one. So, and the reason why George is the best one is because George is a very social cat. You know, George will never ever ever be annoyed by my desire to hang out with George. He will always be happy about it. 
and that makes him the best roommate ever. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. So, I'm like, sorry. So does that mean that I'm like the best friend on the planet? No, you're different because you come with a lot of asks. George just wants George comes I have I've hung out with George and George also comes with a lot of ass. Oh, you have to pet me. Oh, you need to hold me. Oh, you need to feed oh my God. me. So, so another thing I love about George is that he, um, he's a big fan of hanging out with me while I'm asleep. And so this morning I woke up and George was generally around. He was just like bumbling around as he does. And I just grabbed him and I just like hugged him and he just chilled. And then I woke up like an hour later and he was still hanging out with so, me. And so it's like cats. You th- so you would if say you that it's. you know cats, you know that they don't really do yeah. that very often. So George is the best cat. So you would say it's generally a positive characteristic that like for someone to. George. For someone for to. For some be, cats. For someone cats, to. Cats, cats, cats. <laughs> To be hugged and be chill. See, she knows where I'm going. I don't like you. You're mean. (laughs) Shut up. Wait, wait, hold on. Hold on. No, no, no. Back that. This is assault. This is assault. Help. Call the police. Wait, by the time you hear this, too late anyways. Can I go back to your microphone? Oh, my God. Jesus Christ. And now, and now we record it. And just to be clear, in case anyone thought I was doing something terrible, what I went is I went over and gave Joanna a hug. And it was terrible. <laughs> and you should call the police. Oh, man. You're going to have to make a call about whether you want to keep that in the episode. I now. do want to keep it. Okay. Okay. Say uh, for the record that it, it was a hug. It was a hug. Nothing bad happened. It was a hug. Something horrible happened. <laughs> he hugged me. It was terrible. <laughs> um george also um george is the best i my 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 personal favorite thing about george is that about two weeks before joanna got george maybe three um we were reading a zine uh, a fictionalized zine the ones we've talked about before the joshua chapman zines and in one scene, thing uh, he talks about how his cat will sometimes lick him when he's when he's sad or crying and joanna's like this is bad writing there is no, no cats do that. And I'm like, well, I'm like, well, you know, it's not common, but some cats do it. She's like, and Joanna's like, no, there's not a single cat on the face of the earth that licks people. And then Joanna got a cat who licks people. Yeah, it's true. When George is feeling affectionate, he will lick me, which is actually, uh, George is the best. But one of the things that is kind of annoying is when my hand is covered in, in, in cat spit. Um, it's fine. It's just a little bit smelly and kind of sticky. So, and I have to wash my hands. I'm a big fan of. But, but generally speaking, George is the best. And like one of the things about George that like this morning, for example, I was making breakfast and George was like, I don't understand why you're making breakfast when you could be petting me. Please stop making breakfast. Please stop eating breakfast and come pet me. And then like, you know, he'll put up with it for a little while and then he'll make like a very distressed sound and run out of the room. And I will have to follow him out of the room and pick George up and say, George, it's okay. I'm just eating breakfast. It's going to be fine. So so basically what's happened is that Joanna- George is the best. What's happened is that Joanna, who's normally someone who wants to be left alone and is particularly put out when people are demanding things of her, has found that she's very lonely living alone and has intentionally found an entity who's very demanding of her whose needs she can meet. Yes. One thing, here are some other things about George that you might not know. One is that he does not like watching things on the television and will not stand to be in the room when the TV is George on. does not like Earthbound. We, we have tested this multiple times. Video games either, correct. Uh, George doesn't mind it if I'm reading, but he, he absolutely will not put up with being read too. He's not interested in that. Uh, George doesn't understand what laser pointers are, and therefore they are not good toys for George because they just freak him out. Some things about George. Yeah. Well, it's, so maybe a, a pretty important thing to note is that George is 15. You adopted him 15 years old. Yes. So I, so I think, 
I intentionally adopted an older cat who has lived with other cats, dogs, and children with the notion that I wanted an animal that wouldn't be, uh, you know, when I was in Chicago, I, um, I had a kitten who Emma had, who my best, my best friend in New York, Emma has now by the name of Ellie. And one of the things I learned is that, you know, taking care of a young animal is a lot of work. Um, there's a lot of the, you know, they're a lot more energetic. They're a lot more playful. They get into things a lot more. It's not a, a good example of this would be when they kept pulling on the wires of Joanna's PlayStation three. And so she enclosed it in a glass case so that they wouldn't do that. And then it overheated and died. <laughs> right. Um, and there are lots of others, right? Like yeah. there are a lot of things that were completely destroyed as a result of young yes. cats. And I wanted an older cat who was more chill and, I thought an older cat would be more chill, but had experience, you know, had experienced living with other um, yeah. cats and dogs and children and stuff. Um, but there was also a humanitarian aspect, right? Which is the idea that kittens always, pretty much always get adopted. Right. And the other cats. thing is I didn't have to worry about it, right? Mm-hmm. Because I wasn't, you know, adopting an older cat is only for the good. That's correct. But um, where I got really lucky with George is that he isn't just a chill older cat. He's a chill older cat who actively enjoys my company, which is not something that I would necessarily have expected from a cat. Or really from anybody, are. let's be honest. We're such a shit show <laughs> from a cat. And so, you know, it's like, it, it has gone a long way um, to helping me, but it's also, you know, it's cats are cats. They're not people. And there's still this sort of outstanding question of what is Joanna's social life going to look like as she settles into Sacramento? And certainly a large part of that does include Dylan, who is pointing at himself in a very exaggerated fashion. Um, but also, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I think there was a period of time where I was substantially more distressed than I am right now. You know, I am very optimistic about, um, about how things are going to turn out at the moment. One of the things is that, maybe I shouldn't say this in a podcast, but I'm not sure, you know, one of the other things about, when I was a public librarian is that my coworkers were unequivocally my friends as well. Right. Like we, we kept in contact outside of work, even though we didn't necessarily hang out all the time. We had a very strong bond. Yeah. And I don't have that where I work right now. Yeah, I know how you, yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I wasn't sure if, you know, because work is such a primary place when you're an an adult to make friends, that I wasn't really sure what was going to happen, but, um, I'm, I am less worried about that now than I was um, for a little while Ooh. there. I have I have a right. more right. of a more of an optimistic outlook on it. I will also say that you know all human beings have their strengths and weaknesses, and we all have our anxieties, right? And some anxieties are rational because they're like, I'm worried I won't be able to do this thing that I'm bad at, right? But one thing I will say for you is that of the many people I've known in my life, you are one of the absolute best people at making friends that that exists i mean i i actually got a little bit irritated joanna because like within a week i've worked for i've been here for three years and i've worked to have a regular board gaming night and have had struggled to get people and within a week joanna was like oh i have people who are like want to do a board gaming night at work you know that it's like you make connections with people from and i'm sure on your end there's some amount of effort but from my from my end it almost looks effortless it looks right um yeah i think the difference between us a long-standing difference between us is that you have been very you're very generous about who you spend your time with in the sense that to play a board game with somebody or watch a movie with somebody you don't have to feel particularly well matched to that person 
personality wise which doesn't say anything about them just that they can be very different from you right yes. and i i have a hard time doing that so for me which is interesting i can also... meet a lot of people who like board games but i to really regularly board game with somebody i have to i i i have to have more than just a desire to game Right. It has to be more than just that between us. Which is interesting because you've also told me that I'm much more picky about people than you are. Um, I think that's true. Like, I would say... Sorry. I would say that I, I think that you differentiate between friends you share hobbies with and, you know... Friends you have conversations with. And not just friends you have conversations with, but maybe this is a little bit pushy, but friends that you have a friendship with that extends past a hobby, right? So it can include hobbies, but it is not just hobbies, right? Um, and that latter category, I would say you are pickier. I yeah. mean, to be completely frank with you, I think I might be one of like three people that falls into that category for you, right? Um, that's fine. Um, well, to be fair, oh God, this is a pity party time. But I, I was, know. I was going to say, to be fair, there are a number of people who I've admitted into that category who have then abandoned me. So it's not like just like I only let three people in the door, right? Well, you know? yes. And I would say that one of the things is, right, one of the recurring things about, you know, not just you, but about um, not being able to maintain certain levels um, over time is that, right, it comes with having what we'll say is higher standards in terms of what you ask for, you know? Um, and that's, that is, that's an ongoing thing for me. I think I'm not as picky as you are, but I'm still more picky than, oh, we have, no. we both like to play board games. Well, I'm sure that no member of, uh, no listener of this podcast will understand what you mean when you say that I'm uh, demanding or make lots of ass. So we probably should explain that to them at length. Yeah, I, I think that's a bad idea. <laughs> um, no, I was. So, right. Kidding. So. Okay, so um, here we go. So I moved to Sacramento. I got a cat. I started a job, right? Y you know, you're probably going, okay, Joanna, it sounds like everything worked out as perfectly as it possibly could for you. How could you possibly be stressed? Everything is magical. You got a job 10 minutes after you arrived in no, Sacramento. You got I, a nice I apartment. I don't think people would you say got, that. You, you, you even have a pet who turned out to be an above average yeah. pet. Transition, right? transition is always stressful. And even though... On paper, things have gone very—I mean, in, in many very real ways, right? Things have gone very well for you. I don't think anyone would go like, well, what are you complaining about? Because the thing is—I mean, one thing that I think it's important to know about is the places that you have lived in your life are Chicago, uh, Ann Arbor, uh, Amherst, Massachusetts, and New York City. Um, and in both in Amherst, you had a very strong social community, like, kind of built in. It was college. It's College is like its own yeah. thing. And Ann Arbor was like a little bit of that, and you weren't that happy there. Right, so you're like a big city person, and living in Sacramento is like a big difference. Yeah, honestly, I would say that Sacramento as a physical location, because the heat here is dry, um, yeah. and because the place itself has such an emphasis on pretty areas that aren't hard to walk in, and I mean that like very seriously. Like there aren't that many. You're, you have a lot of parks, and there aren't that, and they don't have that many steep areas. They're all flat. Sacramento is flat as a pancake. Right. So where I feel comfortable walking around, in many ways, Sacramento, in terms of my quality of life, is a noticeable step up. Actually, from big cities. Um, I'm, I'm glad to hear this because this this feeds into my plan of us moving to Portland. Um, 
you know, I think, you know, people complain. They're like, oh, my God, it's 104 degrees. I'll be completely honest with you. In 97, 96 degree weather in Chicago when it's humid, it's like 500 times worse. Yeah, I know. When I'm walking around, because I do this in campus, I have to walk around a lot in 103 degree weather uh, and it's dry heat. I can tell that it's really hot because of, you know, it takes me longer to get somewhere. Like there's, it's more energy, but it doesn't feel oppressive. Wait, so it takes you like, like. An hour <laughs> to it walk takes between me buildings forever, but you know, and I can tell that I need water more often, right? Like I, there are symptoms that I'm in high heat, but none of them are the active discomfort of Chicago summers, right? Whereas no. I will say, as a Seattleite, I have gotten better about heat than I was, you know, when I lived there. Like I used to think 75 was too hot, and now I'm going to say that like maybe 75 is okay and 80 is too hot, but I'm still about 30 miles off from you know your average Sacramentan. Um, I worked at a convention yesterday where it was 85 degrees and on the asphalt, and I was like, oh, I want to die. I bought a popsicle, and then a, we had a, an 8-year-old who came up, and she um, was coming up to hang out at our booth, not because she really wanted to hang out with us, but because she had a snow cone that was basically a big block of ice, and she wanted to melt some. <laughs> and then she inspired me, and I went, and she's like, and I was like, oh, that looks like a really good snow cone. She's like, there's one left. And I was like, I'm going to do that. <laughs> and went and got the other snow cone. Um. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, um, sorry. Sorry. Total tension. Yeah. So, um, so you know, for me, it's been quite an intense couple months, um, since March. Uh, it's it's impossible for me to believe that it's about to be July. That's ridiculous. Um, and you know, things are chugging along. One of the things that happens is that somebody will call me up. A friend will call me up, and they'll be like, "How are you? How are things?" And I'll be like, "You know, work's happening. Life's happening. Things are happening." So one of the things about the day-to-day experience is that, like, it's not like I have a whole ton to report, you know? It's like, um... Uh, You're getting settled. Right. It's just, like, things are, you know, chugging along, and that's what's happening. Yeah. Um, but you're most of the way there. Yeah. So so that's my update. I don't know. Are you going to talk about what's happened to you since March? I've been great. You've been spectacular. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't want to... Uh... I've, I would say that, that pretty much all of 2019 uh, has been pretty rough for me. There's, it, I mean, it's one of those things where it's not like there's one thing that happened that was really rough. It's more like there were like half a dozen things that happened, each of which would have individually been a kind of a big deal in normal circumstances. And they all just sort of hit at once between, generally between about January and April and through April. Um, so I have had a, a time that has been, I think, pretty emotionally difficult for me and then it's led to like various like like genuine like mental health issues and just being kind of a nutcase um i also have a side theory which i may have been suffering i still be suffering a bit from vitamin b12 deficiency which is something that happens to uh vegans if they're dumb dumbs and don't take their b12 uh supplements which i've not been taking because i'm a dumb dumb um but yeah but the good news is that i am um at least on the mend and I would say the month of June has been substantially better than, than all the previous months. Um, Yay. And, here. and of course, I am really happy that Joanna, like, it's one of these things where I, I think I said to Joanna yesterday that, like, I'm still, like, I'm starting to accept that she lives in the same city. It's such an adjustment that even though it's, like, a really good thing, it's still, like, kind of weird and in some ways hard to adjust that and try to figure out what that looks like like an example that is like on one hand we're spending like obviously way more time together than we did before on the other hand there's some things like the podcast that take longer because we're spending our time together hanging out in person yeah. and so all these like 
sort of virtual homeworky projects that we used to have like just take forever there's just there's just different changes yeah um i will say one highlight for me has been uh oh god we should have had a podcast segment on this legacy of dragon hole did we, we i don't think we ever talked about that well it's happened since march so you might as well yeah talk about it now. um we sh- that, let's make that its own little mini segment later like, you think so uh yeah because we i already have a game and you have a book well and- you know one of the things i was thinking about just as a toss-up and you guys can tell us if you think it's a good idea or not is there are a lot of podcasts out there whose sole focus is recording games right yeah. and like I don't think we should do that, but it might be fun to do, like, to record, like, you know, uh, us doing a, a short a session of Legacy of Dragon Holt. Or right? something like that. Or something like that, where it's not just this is what's happening, but, like, you get sort of an inside picture of it, it's what it's like to be yeah. engaged in and that. And then you can laugh at my old man voice. You have the best old man voice. <laughs> when I was a... That's my, that's my impression it. of your impression yeah. of an old man. Yeah, yeah. I can't even do I need the script. I can't do it without the script. It's so good. But uh, I, it's actually worth knowing that I have the second best old man voice because uh, Chris Somner had the best old man voice, if you remember from the Death Fest days. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, Death Fest is a, D and, a, a modified D&D all-night um, all campaign that runs— That, that Hampshire College did, our Semesterly. And, and it's called Death Fest because hundreds of people play, but only one person wins. So the goal is to die as creatively as well, possible. Well, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Only one person lives, but living as they go to point is not winning, right? They actually will mock you a little bit if you're the person who lives, right? So you're yeah. supposed to die. So, like, they'll basically—it's almost like—think of it like a bracket. So there'll be, like, a bunch of sessions, and, like, most of the people will die in their first session. And if you make it through, you get to the second session, and most of the people will die in the second session, you know. And then everybody's a big audience for the third uh, session. Though I had one of the worst. My final death pass was a really bad experience because we had—to make a long story short, there was some face-off between Bill Nye and, like, Pat Sajak's head. Uh, is that—I think it was, yeah. And me and, like, three other players sided with Pat Sajak, which ended up being the right decision because, like, Bill Nye was evil or whatever. And so, like, we were going to be safe and Bill, they were going like, to kill, like, everyone else. But then that person who was our DM got really sick and was, like, really nauseous and had to go home. And the person who replaced him, like, we're there behind time. And they were just like, uh, they attack everybody. Right? And I was like, no! Like, we did this thing, right? Like, we had manipulated the scenario such. And so then we, like, just died randomly. Actually, only, only um, I think... I think I died and my friend didn't, or the vice versa. But at that point, I was like, okay, I'm checked out now. You know, I mean, no, I mean, the DMs, you know, they did what they had to do. The annoying part was that they didn't, like, they didn't believe me. Like, they were like, oh, you're trying to stay alive. I'm like, no, that was actually, you know, anyway. Dumb, dumb bits. Um, but yeah, I guess other than that, I don't have a lot to add. I'm still at the library uh, without saying things I should not say on the public forum. I will say that, that there's been some frustrating things at the library you know, in the last, really the last year, you know, and, and I think particularly in the last six months. Um, so there's been, it's one of these things where I've basically said, you know, like when I first, not when I first started this, but I was like, oh, this is my lifelong career. I'm going to be like a public librarian, not necessarily at Sacramento, but like, you know, and now there's some doubt has crept in. So I'm like, I'm still there. I'm not quitting. You know, I'm, I plan to be there for the foreseeable future. Um, but I'm also, you know, thinking about, you know, what my, what my long-term future is like. So, you know, that kind of craziness has, um, is one of the reasons why it's taken us so long to record this podcast, but now might be a good time to mention that going forward, we probably won't have full-length podcasts anymore. We're going to do mini-sodes. 
Right. One thing that we had that was a discussion we had is that this podcast was structured around as something for us to sort of do to keep our friendship alive when we are not yeah. in the same place. Um, and so maybe the, the, the very scheduled structure where we each do a certain amount of homework and do this and do that um, doesn't make as much sense. But A, we don't want to just abandon the podcast. And B, I finally got like an actual audio recording setup that like works and is much less, less of a pain to edit. <laughs> so yes. I would really hate to... Uh, give it up at, at this point. point um so go ahead and also you know we also sort of have this kind of cool opportunity now where because two of us can be in the same place still not can be in the same place it's a little bit easier logistically to bring on guests yeah. so that's a thing that we're thinking about doing we're thinking about having single topic dedicated minisodes that are like half an hour to an hour um you know where we just talk about issues of the day and we're also very interested in your ideas of what you would like to see. Yes. So as always, please email a possibility of opinions at gmail.com. Um, also, it's a random book. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. And we got we have a new logo coming down. The line. Yeah, that was exactly what I was going to say. So um, the the brilliant Opinions are out. Right. The opinions brilliant graphic designer um, Robin Ricks made us. Actually, like seven different lovely logos, but we chose one. But we chose one, um, and that will be uploaded to um, you know my website and iTunes and various places, so that fingers crossed, it will be the logo you see when this episode is out. The the, the the process of replacing art for podcasts is kind of complicated, so but you're they're gonna it, miss the Apanons, but you they're know gonna it. yeah. The, I am not going to miss that stupid joke. Um, I'm it's like to... my favorite thing. I know, guys. It's like when your I made thing. the the crappy logo that we have now on paint, I misspelled opinions, so it says opinions. You might not have noticed. It's like my favorite thing no, ever. No, I I think they have noticed because you've referenced it in literally every. Episode I can't we've help it. I'm so into opinions. <laughs> um, the uh, yeah. Anyways, so you know, let us know your ideas for minisodes. One thing we're also gonna do is probably do some like little, still like do media club, game club sort of things. Yeah, as like um, one off. So one, my favorite game this year so far is a game called Hypnospace Outlaw, which Joanna recently started playing. Have you played more than your first session? Yeah, yeah okay. And so, um, if Joanna uh, decides that she wants to finish it, we will definitely do. Uh, an yeah, well, if you want him, yeah. And so there's media club, and sometimes media club is us doing something together, like for this podcast we play chess yeah and we'll get there eventually but we played it together we might separately play the same game and come back and talk about it um yeah another thing that we might come back to is democracy for realists yes because there's a part two on that i mean really like the final 80 percent of the book yes thank you for mentioning that that's um, one so we definitely so basically the point is that we're definitely doing future episodes um as of this point there's not a specific schedule for it I think as our lives settle here, we might hit a rhythm and then we'll be like, oh, we're doing this every month or every month and a half or so yeah. we'll figure out something so it's not just random drops. But, but that's, uh, that's where we are now. Correct. Okay. What is next on the agenda? JP report back. Um, so I'm starting with my JP report back. Uh, jo- Joanna, why don't you tell me what, what you asked me to do with your audience? You no, know, you tell them because okay. I don't remember my exact wording. <laughs> Joanna, okay, so here's the question. Joanna asked me to write um, what makes me distinct and this ended up being to like having some like to do with the philosophy of like how we're our own individuals and stuff like that. But so this assignment was unexpectedly hard for me. Uh, as someone who talks a lot and is very open about myself, it would seem like it'd be really easy to write about myself. But when you get into like the larger uh, 
question of like what makes me me there's some sort of like existential terror there and then all a lot of things that are like really uncomfortable when you talk about like the distinctive things about yourself that are generally considered to be negative so uh but i wrote a thing so i'm gonna talk about that uh for a while about what makes me distinct uh and then do i guess you want to give her thoughts on it and she'll be like that person sounds terrible um so i wrote as the old saw goes everyone is unique when thinking about what makes me distinct, it's easy to fall into navel-gazing to find great meaning in traits that are unremarkable. I will do my best to avoid this, but will lean on the side of sharing, since it's also easy to include that I'm just not remarkable. Uh, I'm also spending, avoiding spending too much time reflecting on my group identities, because by definition, those are not distinct to me. And I didn't put it into random sections. First is called the dichotomy. If I have an animating divide, it's that I am both unusually silly and unusually self-serious. If I had to guess, I'd say that both are a side effect of me being a di bit divorced from the larger social fabric, spending more time living inside my head, as Joanna puts it, than most people, and thus more driven by my own headspace and less by what is socially expected. But such speculation is probably outside the scope of this piece. So, silliness. In every community I've been in, school or work, I've brought unusual energy, which manifests not as quite intensity, but as obvious passion and mirth. I make a lot of jokes, primarily for my own amusement, but also to reduce tension in myself and others, because even bad jokes lighten the mood. I don't worry about whether other people take me seriously, and I'm not restrained by self-consciousness. I have a lot of ideas, and I'm generally excited to start new initiatives. I'm youth I seem youthful and sometimes frivolous, and people comment on it regularly. This approach is so natural to me that I have to work to tamp it down in situations that require more professional restraint. This love of fun and play also extends into most of my interests, most obviously all things gaming, but also other forms of media. Acting is a form of play, and films and stage productions just elaborate make-believe. I am drawn towards literature that plays with language or the form itself, and while I have various sensory issues that can make travel difficult, more on that later, I love the process of discovery and exploration, of learning new things and putting them together into some form of mental map. And yet I am very serious about play. I don't just play video games to relax. I put time into reading games criticism and history, and I've re even written both myself, uh, most notably my book. I advocate for games and play more broadly as something deserving serious attention and merit in society. Likewise, I take my work very seriously. I'm not a clock-in, check-out sort of person. I put a lot of effort into getting things done right and get annoyed, sometimes unreasonably so, when things are done wrong. Though it's worth knowing that I'm not irritated by imperfection so much as by the absence of serious effort to do it right. For instance, finding there are important tasks that haven't been assigned to anybody. I'm driven by the values of my work, and I have actively avoided jobs that don't leave me with a sense of doing good in the world. In short, I don't really switch between being silly and being serious in the way most people do. At some level, I am always both, and that touches everything I do. Beliefs. Another animating part of me is my orientation towards truth, fairness, and justice. I know that even saying that out loud induces eye rolls, but it really is core to my being. In college, Joanna joked about how I was always lawful good in the D&D sense. When I was young, this expressed itself as rigid moral values and a lot of judgment of other people, though I also was very demanding of myself, such as my rule of never lying. As I've gotten older and developed a more complex understanding of things, and have worked to develop empathy, or something like it, for other human beings, I've become more flexible and understanding of other folks, 
But relative to most people, I am still overtly moralistic in a way that I'm understood makes many people uncomfortable. I have strongly held values and I don't attempt to hide it, even though I almost never give other people grief for not living by my values. Yeah, Joanna raises her eyebrows at that. Um, which is, I, I, I paused there because I'm like, I know, I'm like, crap, Joanna's not going to agree with that. <clears throat> I, of course, have a thousand beliefs specific to different contexts and policy domains. But if we drill down to the core, you'll find the following beliefs deeply held beyond any rationality. One, honesty is almost always the best policy, and I'm extremely skeptical of dishonesty and the various justifications for it. Two, the universe is inherently chaotic and entropic. This leads to an inherent unfairness in life. But life is unfair as a starting point, not an excuse, and everyone alive is obligated to do what they can to make the world more fair for their fellow life forms. 3. We are all deeply ignorant of many things and must factor that ignorance into our decision making. We must consider the possibility of other possibilities. 4. Cruelty is never okay. The next section is autism. Weirdly, one of my more distinct qualities is, qual is common enough to be its own field of study autism, which is to say I have a lot of traits that, relative to neurotypical, are very unusual, but that approximately 1.5% of the U.S. population shares with me. A common tension throughout my life is how I integrate my autism into my identity and how I present it to other people. For the last decade, I've been high-functioning enough that I can pass as merely eccentric to most people. My autism is only obvious to people very familiar with the condition or those who develop a close relationship with me. And yet I have not, and never will, overcome autism. My neurology is fundamentally different from most people's, and that affects a lot of things, primarily the way I conceptualize other people. I've had many discussions with Joanna over the years, comparing notes and trying to figure out just how different our actual experiences are. But it certainly seems that my process for empathy is fundamentally, fundamentally different from other people's, and that I fundamentally cannot account for the wholeness of another person's experience in the same way I can account for my own. Yet. At the same time, I seem to practice empathy more than most of my peers. American society has never been free from public cruelty, but today it's highly visible everywhere you go, and this seems to emerge from a fundamental failure of empathy, an inability to understand that the people you are injuring are very similar to yourself and feel pain in the same way. This could be an essay of its own, so I'll leave it there, but my attempt to understand neurotypicals and integrate with their society while defending my right to exist has been a constant thread since I was born. And I say social. I enjoy the company of other people and don't quickly tire of socializing, but I avoid crowds whenever possible. I'm easily overstimulated. So almost all of my socializing is one-on-one -on -one or in small groups. Particularly unusual for people my age, it's almost all scheduled in advance. A lot of this is me hosting movie nights or game nights at my apartment. I'm a good host and a homebody, and this is my comfort zone. But I do like doing things out and about, particularly interesting new cultural experiences, or just walking in nature. But my homebody nature means I almost never do those things by myself and really prefer someone to go with. For my entire life, my circle of friends has been small. And from the inside, it's hard to tell how much this is personal preference and how much of this is me being a weird, abrasive individual that most people just aren't going to want to integrate into their lives. But that is what it is. Finally, I've never dated anyone. We could have a whole separate monologue about the different reasons for that over time, but the fact is it doesn't bother me. I'm largely happy being single, but I almost never discuss it because in our society, not dating is considered shameful, a sign of personal deficiency. Trivia. Finally, some random distinctive trivia. 
I wrote a book and it has succeeded beyond my meager hopes, even as I sort of regret not marketing it or polishing it more. But it's in universities throughout the world and even the Smithsonian's library, so I can't really, so I really can't complain. It's published as copyleft, so anyone can freely read or reproduce it. My politics are idiosyncratic and confuse people. Four times out of five, I will hold a position that you'd expect an American liberal to hold, although the definition of liberal is increasingly uncertain. But I feel no loyalty to party, and the way I carry express my views tends to make people think I'm the other, which is to say that conservatives and moderates assume I'm lefty, and leftists assume I'm libertarian or something. I didn't start drinking alcohol till I was 23. Today, I love beer and drink it often, but rarely get tipsy and never get shrank drunk. Before I drank beer, I was a root beer connoisseur. I have an encyclopedic knowledge about many aspects of Star Wars, despite being disinterested and mildly put out by the ongoing franchise. And one of my fondest memories is the time that I was watching uh, an episode of Xena with uh, Joanna, and it's a sort of Groundhog Day episode. Oh, so yeah. early in the episode, uh, one of uh, a favorite character named Joxer is killed. Joxer! But Joanna doesn't know the structure of the episode yet. And so when they're having this funeral pile, I go into this whole speech about how the show was never the same after Joxer died. And then like a minute later, it's revealed that, that he didn't actually die. And it's not permanent. And Joanna like hits me for five minutes. And it was just like, the, I just laughed <laughs> Joxer, and laughed and laughed. It was Joxer the funniest was the best. Thing. Um, and this is also very typical of Dylan. Something that makes him distinct is that he takes great pleasure in my not very serious pain. Um, yes. And that's, that's, that's all I have written. Yes. Um, you know, I think when I in, assigned that to you, I think all those things are individual to you. I think when I originally assigned that, one of the things that I was thinking about was thinking about where the line is, right? Um, between where you end and the rest of the world begins. Um, and certainly some of that had to do with the fact that um, it was an issue that was recurring in our conversation. But another reason for thinking about things that way goes back to what I was saying to James in abstract earlier in this episode, which is that, you know, it, it behooves a person to think about and, and structure one's thoughts in a way that doesn't denigrate self-interest on the basis of the fact that it's self-interest. Um, so that's certainly part of, of what, uh, what I think about, but I'm, I really like the way that your articulation of what makes you yourself is, you know, this is a little bit selfish, but it's a reflection of the things that I like a lot, right? So one of the things that's nice about hearing this is that's like, oh yes, this is one of my best friends, Dylan, right? And this is something that I would like, you know, be like, oh, you don't know Dylan? Well, you should listen to this podcast, and then you'll understand why Dylan's great, you know, and that's nice. Or they might listen to this podcast and be like, that person sounds terrible. I don't think so. <laughs> um, you know, um, there there are certainly probably some things about the true things that you've stated about yourself that, you know, might end up being a little bit grating in experience, but nobody listening to you would know that. But just remember, me. just remember the root word of grating is great. Oh, Lord. Um... But no, overall, I thought it was a very good description of you. Um, and I liked, I was very impressed with the way that you were able to identify the themes, right? The things that were, um, that were true of you generally without getting into the specific, you know, getting into the weeds on the stuff that yeah. comes up in relation to them often. So that was cool. Um, uh, yeah. yeah. Great. I'm glad, I'm glad you liked it. Uh, said it was, it was hard to write, but it was worthwhile. Uh, so... The JP assignment 
that you assigned me was to, to write a little bit about the what what the effect of writing a novel has been on me. Um, yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, that's it. So uh, to recap, Joanna wrote a novel that is titled The Constructionist. You can find it on Amazon. My name is Joanna Tova Price. It was published in 2017 or 2018? Yes, 2017. 2017. Um, yeah. Okay. So perhaps the single biggest reason I managed to finish the novel I wrote called The Constructionists is because I had never completed a project of that magnitude before and certainly never simply for its own sake. And I felt that if I did it, if I finished the thing, really finished something big like that of my own accord, I would experience a rite of passage and be a changed person. This changed person would have a much easier time at finishing things in general. This changed person would experience substantially less anxiety and substantially more focus. Needless to say, that is not how it turned out. Sidebar, please don't say, but Joanna, you never experience anxiety or you will experience my wrathful wrath. This is something I hear often. People say, but you are not an anxious person. But Joanna, you're not an anxious person. Yes. <laughs> go, go, go away forever. Um, there is another reason I wrote it, though, uh, which is that I had an idea to sell. It was not my literary prowess, although if you happen to be a publisher looking to pick up a hidden gem, please let me know. It was not a political message. It was the beginning of what has quite possibly become the campaign of my life. How strange to think that this would end up being the thing that lasted. An idea which originally became a focal point in my novel um, because my own focus was drawn there out of raw need. The constructionist is, for me, fundamentally about relating to each other. As I think I've mentioned before, I recently moved to Sacramento, California, and I've been using this app, Bumble BFF, to find new friends because I don't uh, know too many people around here and I am typically a very social person. This is, I just said this, I know, but it's yeah, right Yeah, it's there. Last week, I met a woman whose conversational style matched mine well. She had majored in literature and gone on to get a teaching degree. An avid progressive, she not only had views I, w I was very familiar with from my own milieu, but she had a need to make them a central part of how she introduced herself. I found myself in an unusual situation. Here was someone who was a lot like many of my friends, but with whom I risked nothing by introducing my pushiest argument, and from whom I could expect the best faith that she was capable of. Certainly, she would not say, but what has happened to you, Joanna, having never met me before that occasion? I developed what has become my pushiest argument in my novel originally. It's simple, and if you accept it, it's a brutal critique of how we've come to relate to each other today. Quite simply, the feelings we can share for each other have no inherent relationship with political views at all. It is not despite disagreement, but in fact without any relationship to, to that disagreement, that the chemistry between friends and lovers occurs. Happiness is the deprecation of moral jurisdiction in favor of simple personal preference. Furthermore, anyone who argues otherwise is by definition attempting at the very least to share a political agenda with you, if not pressure you into shilling their political agenda. This notion of relating to each other that is fundamentally anti-activist takes its most nascent form in The Constructionists. In the original conception of the novel, there's a scene that occurs outside the jailhouse, a press conference where an existential discussion of safety occurs. The scene was satirical and ended up being cut because it didn't match the tone. But one of its primary features is a consistent rejection of progressive political ideas of safe spaces as being insufficient to address the existential issue of feeling safe in the world. I also played around with dead-eyed public transit employees, and I know you know the type, confronting notions of the archetypical journey or moving in a philosophical manner, and so on. In the end, I cut it all and left two things. Younger characters who spend 
who spent a lot of time longing for forms of intimacy that aren't allowed in political discourse, and older characters who had dealt with that longing in different ways. The woman I met in the cafe last week, I told her that contrary to popular opinion on the left, I don't think Trump is a narcissist at all. Quite the opposite. I think it's been a very long time since Trump has felt at home with himself, and that to an extreme degree, his actions represent a guilt response to the reality of being complicit by the fact of existence. The existential idea is that because we are born into and function inside systems, our participation itself maintains those systems, and we can't not participate. Therefore, we have no choice but to be complicit in whatever the system, that system does. Think of Dustin Hoffman in I Heart Huckabees with the blanket. Seriously, Google it if you haven't seen it. That scene is a head trip. Trump, in short, is running from Trump. And this woman said to me, Trump is near the bottom of my list because I rank it in order of involuntary suffering. I will spend my time and my sympathy on people who suffer at the hands of the system first, and those who have what many of us call political privilege second. Then she said, but perhaps I shouldn't be speaking to you about this because it's so problematic being Jewish right now. It's not my place. And my response is simple. Your ranked list was drafted in a strategy session in an office somewhere in the deep state. Your ranked list has nothing to do with suffering at all. It's a series of parameters designed by the left to mobilize voters. The identities on your list almost certainly correlate to voting flocks. The point here is not, is really not, to rage against the man. The point is, forget the entire paradigm. The point is, the world is a lonely fucking place and everyone is broken and you should burn your lists and your signs and you should love each other and if you do that, you may find that social justice is produced organically. Yes, we all of us have our internal biases and yes, we all of us are born into different situations that provide different levels and kinds of opportunity. But above all else, we all want what we can all give to be recognized for who we are and not simply for our political uses. And that's what the constructionists are in the end. They are two generations of people struggling for the intimacy of personal recognition in a society where that is undervalued in favor of political identity. Many of them fail spectacularly, but the reader is returned again and again to the idea that there are better and worse ways to construct meaning. Meaning being the shared clay, sculpting it being the act of relating to each other. And that ultimately has become the heart of most of my work since. Perhaps I am anti-political, but I think it is fair to say that I believe strongly in the power inherent in seeing each other for who we are, transcending rhetoric. This book was my first attempt at giving myself and other people permission to love each other for who we are. It's always okay to love. It doesn't matter, and it might make the world a better place. Very nice. Was that way too fast? No, that was good. Okay, good. And then that last time I was like, yeah. but um, so, you know, the short, the long and short of it is, when I started the novel, my idea of what it was going to be about was you know, becoming the sort of person who finished what she started, right? Like, I was going to finish this big project that, you know, was, that everyone recognized was, like, this big thing that you did. And after doing that, I would be the sort of person who finished things, right? And that would be who I was, and it would be much easier, right? If I just did it the one time, I would be able to do it. Mm-hmm. That is not how I would describe myself right now. Um, but I would also say that, you know, as someone who's known you for a while— you know, when when I first met you, you were extraordinarily terrible at finishing things, and now you're a bit subpar. You know, but you have made genuine progress in the time I've known you, like noticeable. Progress. That may be true, but it is not related to having finished a novel, which is what which was in fact consciously on my mind when I sat down to write it. Right, yeah. I had this notion that some something major would have changed if I became somebody who finished something of this size, and to some extent, this- for me that approach things in a, in, on, on a multi-level, in a multi-level way, right? So I wrote a novel yeah. that 
not only did I just finish writing a big chunk of text, right? but it held together and did something interesting and was like a project, yeah. you know, that I was happy to put my name on that I thought was going to make me uh, a changed person in frankly, a way that it didn't. It didn't. However, but you still did it. I did the thing. And, and, and I will also say that in writing this thing and then thinking about it, I didn't, I hadn't really reflected on the fact that what has become a central part of my thinking and my writing since then really got, has its basis in that novel, right? Mm -hmm. So that novel did change me substantially. Um, but the way that it changed me was it organized my thought around how people should relate to each yeah. other. And that is not something I would have observed or said had I not sit down, yeah. sat down to write this. Yeah. You know, and the, the one thing I would add as an addendum to that, maybe to round out the complexity of Joanna for people who only know you through the podcast, is that, well, you know, it is true that you have developed all these these views that you said, you know, may even be sometimes referred to as anti-political, right? It's also true that on occasion, like recently you popped onto Facebook and was like, you know, here's a list of resources to fight the, um, the uh, mass detentions at the border. Yeah. You know, that you're, it's not that you don't have political convictions. Right. I wouldn't say that, I would say that for me, it's about being very, very careful to distinguish spaces. Um, and, you know, don't anybody get too annoyed at me, but this is a very Arendtian situation, right? Mm -hmm. Arendtian, it, I would say Arendt is in some ways, for me, for me as a reader, the mother of distinction, right? Versus this matters and this doesn't. This is the space for this and this is the space for that, right? So then somewhat ironically, Facebook, a space that was originally intended just for be connecting with friends, is actually one of the places that is most appropriate for political advocacy. Yeah, I also think that in general, for me, if I'm having a policy-focused conversation, the arguments are going to be different. The way I talk about things are going to be different. But I make a distinction between the space for talking about policy and what I support in terms of governance and the space that in which I engage with people on the basis of their personal preferences. So I'm far less judgmental of, of choices that are personal, right, that disagree with my politics. And then at the, when I'm arguing politics, I'm, I am removed from mm -hmm. the engagement with personal judgments. And I'm engaged in arguing what is the best governance for a right. country. And then you become very society. annoyed when people bring their personal judgments into that I do become very annoyed. Um, and so uh, I think, you know, yeah, I, w I say this a lot and people, you know, think I'm kooky or they don't, but I do think that it's, um, it is a representation of, a, of an establishment, of an established state, of the deep state trying to mobilize you every time that you say your worth as a person is inherently tied to having these specific political views, right? What do you mean by the deep state? I mean that there is a room, you know, or a space where both Democrats and Republicans are coming together, mm -hmm. right? That, that supersedes this, this, this notion of political party, where there's an establishment that benefits from individuals um, pitting themselves against each other instead of coming together. Yeah. To but not like a literal room, not like a literal room where people are all meeting and having these discussions, but in the sort of Right. I mean, I don't really think that there's a room where the DNC and the RNC meets to plot the course right, of right. the country. I just want to make that, yeah. But I do think that there is actual strategy that's been written down on paper um, and that's been conversed, that's been said out loud yeah. that, that has to do with, um, 
with the benefits of of pitting different groups of people. Yeah, against I, I would each other. say one of the most obvious examples of that, uh, like the one I guess I would say least arguable one that won't get people up in arms is that uh, so I'm from Washington State, as uh, pretty much yeah. our listeners know, and there was a time when Washington State, uh, like California, pursued an open primary. So that, you know, in most states, to vote in the Democratic primary, you have to be a registered Democrat. Okay. If you're not right, mm-hmm. and they're like, "Well, why doesn't we just make it that people can vote in whatever primaries they want? We don't tire the parties." And both the Republicans and the Democrats joined forces to jointly sue the state of Washington. Uh, their argument was that that infringed on their right of association or whatever, right? But obviously, the big thing was that they both said, "We both benefit from the two-party game, and that this messes with the system that we have jointly created." Sure. You know? Yeah. And that was, like, a very obvious example of, of that happening. Yeah, I think, you know, um, it's... Which is, not to, which is not the same to say, again, I just want to be really clear in these times of ours, you know, that is not the same as me arguing that the Republicans and the Democrats are the same and indistinguishable from each yeah, other. Yeah, that's correct. Um, I also think that, um, you know, uh, like... One of the things that you have to acknowledge is that it's not that identity politics are inaccurate. They're not factually incorrect. I'm not arguing that 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 the rhetoric that comes out of identity politics is is objectively wrong. Right. I'm arguing many many of it is objectively right. Uh, right. Lots yeah. of it is correct. I'm arguing that it's just not useful mm. as an approach to relating to other people. Mm. That it is a bad way to approach social justice and to approach you know that this marrying of personal self-worth and 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 how you and how you and what voting blocks you are in it's just not but one thing that's happened is i think you yourself have sort of noted at one point is that we're so it's not just that people don't agree with what you're saying it's that it's impossible to even have the conversation that you're having because one an example of this is that recently i made some pretty minor argument about identity politics and the person on the other end sort of pricked up and was like oh you know identity politics isn't that just a dog whistle for you know the alt-right and the thing is he's not wrong if you go on twitter 90 percent of the time people use the phrase identity politics they are using it as sort of a a social signal for a certain ideology right and they're not really engaging with that subject and so he's not wrong to make the you know to assume that that's probably what's happening when he hears that word at the same time it's a valid framework and it right. becomes yeah and, and it's and, and but i'm saying that not just literally for identity politics but that's emblematic of where we and, are and it's not that the democrats and the republicans are the same right, right? but it is true that they operate within the same framework where identity right. politics are concerned right so um, you know, there is a question about whether the logic itself makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not that, you know, people on the left have the same arguments as the people on the right. But in order for two people to have an argument with each other, they have to be having it in the same framework. There's no right. other way to do it. Otherwise, you're having two different arguments. Right. So what I'm suggesting, right, um, is actually to, to put the whole thing aside, right? To put the whole thing aside. Let's call the whole thing off. Let's call the whole thing off, right? It's not to, to you know, charge you know charge against the establishment and say you're trying to divide us and what are you doing? It's none of that, right? It's not. It's to put down the paradigm entirely um, and to say I am going to make a different choice with how I spend my time and my life and the way that I relate to other people. I think one 
the example that I bring up the most often um, in relation to this is that every Thanksgiving, right, you have these articles that come out and say, and they come out and they say, how are you going to convince your relative at Thanksgiving dinner to shill my agenda, right? And it's like, that's not your job at Thanksgiving dinner, right? That's actually the time when it is least your job. Right. Thanksgiving dinner is about enjoying the company of the people that you're with, right? And if you spend that time trying to make a political argument, you might be doing the right thing, but towards what end, according to who? Yeah. I will say one thing about that, though. Yeah. Was that in general, I find it both obnoxious and deeply uncomfortable when people try to get into political discussions at Thanksgiving, as I think most people do, frankly. Um, but there was at least one good thing that came out of that one time, which is I was having Thanksgiving dinner with a, a family uh, that I, I often had Thanksgiving dinner with. And I must say this was, uh, i say it was 2010. You know, Obama had been in office for a couple of years. And I don't know who started it. My grandfather may have said something bad about Obama. And then one of the hosts, you know, really went out him and he's like, what a, you know, why, what's your problem? You know, the Obama has this quality, you know, that quality or whatever. And my grand and, and and I remember the host being like, "Well, have you even like have you even tried to understand him?" And my grandfather's pause, you know, kind of slowly he said, "You know, I I have tried to understand him, but he's just beyond my ken." And that just unrelated to anything. It's the way he said he's beyond my ken. I I still say that all the time now because of that time my grandfather said that at Thanksgiving. Yeah, and. <laughs> And, and you take a step back and you say, right, your grandfather is saying, I have tried to understand Obama, but he's beyond my ken. You have two ways of seeing that, right? right. Either you can say, what the hell is wrong with you? You're on the wrong side. Get with it. Or you can just say, like, you can recognize the human experience of right. and you not can, understanding something. And you can say, look at this man and listen to this phrase he's just come out with, right? And who is he to me, right? Who is this man to me, right? Yeah. And, and I think that you know, I do think, and I have said, just, I just said just now, that when you choose the path, the political path, when you choose to hear that and say, this guy is not like me because he's not progressive and he's different and mm-hmm. what his politics are immoral and he's a bad person, I do think that when you, when you engage in that mode, you are doing so on behalf of somebody else. You have been mobilized, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's true. That's not why, it's not why I don't think you should do it. I don't think you should do it because I think it will make you less happy. That's why I don't think you should do it. Does that make sense? It should does. Th- it does make sense, though. I always say the 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 ultimate argument against that, uh, and I'm saying this more for the sake of the listeners. I know what you're probably going to say, but like, is is an individual being happy the the best end goal? I believe that social justice arises organically in parallel with happiness. Yes, I think it is the best end goal. But you know. Certainly, certainly we can say that um, that social justice does not arise from pursuing anger and disagreement, right? And, and bad relations, right? Like yeah. that's the, so literally you, so the your, opposite your, of social justice. So your argument would be that, for instance, the, um, the civil rights movement of the 60s and 70s was rooted in people finding happiness. And that's why that was successful to the degree to which if it was. If you read the uh, the martin luther king's writings right oh sure absolutely um he is he is he is love 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 but it's not just you know there's certainly plenty of people who weren't arguing that right you take like malcolm x obviously somebody who was arguing for black nationalism right right um i would say there are a couple of things at play here and it gets really messy because in the 60s and the 70s a lot of progress was made but also there were certain paradigms that were set up certain systems that were set up which are probably ultimately not good Mm -hmm. um and one of them is 
that we have left it up to the courts to make progress in a lot of cases. And the issue there is not that the court is wrong, right? It's not that something is wrong. But when the court makes a call that the democracy is not ready to own, you get some tension there. And that tension is very nasty, right? So the question is— And then then you end up with, with— getting very nasty politics around court stacking in order to yeah and it's, get you have an ruins. open there's an open question that i do not have the answer to right i'm not yeah. suggesting i have the answer to this but there's an open question as to whether long term it is better for justice to be legislated even if it takes longer mm-hmm. or is it better for uh the courts to make that ruling yeah because it happens quicker and i, I don't know right, the answer i, to I that. also don't know i will also say that in terms of things i've done that you know made people either mad at me or dismiss me um in the is it is it obergefell um i don't know i think it's obergefell um the uh state the the supreme court decision that said that uh states had to recognize same-sex marriage um, I believe is Obergefell the yeah. know, United States or whatever. Anyway, so obviously it's a five four decision. You know the majority says they have to recognize that with uh, Kennedy being the, the citing vote. Uh, and and there are actually I think as is often the case a couple dissents. Right, um, Roberts writes one of them, and it's actually a really nice dissent. I remember at the time being like people should read this. And as someone who was you know certainly personally happy you know from a purely political standpoint that same sex marriage you know was now the law of the land. Um, but he was saying, you know, he wrote this thing being like, you know, I do not begrudge anyone being happy for this outcome. You know, I understand how important it is for these people, but, you know, I personally believe that there is something dangerous with taking a a really important decision that our society should be capable of making for itself and having that dictated by constitutional interpretation rather than having us just go through that that process and that pain and come down where we want to come down. And I think that that's that. So I'm going to give another example. That's even more pushy, right? Brown versus board of education. Yeah. Um, you look at, you look at segregation, right? So here's a question that comes up and because the, because there's an, okay. So it was a rent that made this argument first. Right. But my, but the question is why when looking at separate, but equal, did the court not just say, you know what the loss is separate, but equal, but it's unequal. We're going to enforce the equality part of it, right? We are going to make black schools as high quality as white schools, and we are going to enforce that law, right? Mm-hmm. Um, not that it was the correct answer in terms of justice. It certainly wasn't. Right. Segregation is bad, right? Right. But if we had done that, and then eventually yeah. segregation had been done away in the legislation because that society had progressed, would we have the racial tensions that we have right. now? Well, I think the court's argument was that, they, 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 rightly or wrongly, the court believed that that was literally impossible, right? That, that, that the experiment of separate and equal had shown that whatever forces tried to tell them you need to make this equal, it, it simply wasn't happening. Um, I mean, I believe, I agree with you that that is what the court decided and that is what was argued, yeah. right? But it remains unclear that this was that this was the facts, yeah. right? And I think that I think that it's not it's not an easy thing to answer. And there's you know both sides hold water. Like I would never criticize the argument that the court reducing suffering now is a like I would never say that that's a bad thing. It yeah. isn't a bad thing. I also recognize that long term suffering is reduced 
in a more in a in a systemic way by society you know graduating yeah. to a level where it is where it is racist or an understanding versus the court like you said the yeah. court coming down and so it's very it's a very messy thing but i think in my novel and what i was trying to say here is yeah. that that entire conversation is not related is or at least is substantial should be should compose a substantially less part smaller part of what you're doing with your life right what you're doing with your life is not as an individual in a society is not shilling a larger political agenda right mm -hmm. like it shouldn't be that it should be when you think about how you relate to other people it shouldn't be on behalf of the democratic party right it mm -hmm. should be um about what you want in the world and what you recognize in somebody else for who they are not for you know and i think that i think one of the things that one of the distinctions i'm making here that often gets overlooked is that somebody's political views um given the degree that they change um and given that the, the degree to that they have to do with with larger conditions such as where they grew up um and what their experiences were right they're not the sole they're not the sole indicator of your ability to relate to them right they do not represent the worth of a person or even so much their character as much as you think it would you think it might right and so um the pushiest thing i'm saying is that it's not even what you want right at the end of the day like when you're, you know, when you turn out the lights and you crawl into bed, what you want, what I think people really want is to be understood at the individual level, right? To be known, to be known, right? And that this goal far outweighs all the other ones, right? So that this should be the focus. This is what people should do in order to make the world a better place in addition to, um, and, I, and I think that that comes back to you know, my, my belief that, that social justice rises, it becomes, um, expresses itself better in direct correlation to how happy people are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Okay. Well, I think now it is, uh, it's time for your, uh, your song break. Okay. So do you want to introduce it first and then play it, or do you want to play it and talk about it? So I'll just introduce it. This song, nah, I'm on a roll. So the song is, what's the song called? It's called... Please don't leave. It's called Don't Leave Me. It's called Leave. <laughs> Please don't go. Please don't go. And it's by somebody whose last name is Fitzsimmons. I think William Fitzsimmons. Okay, William Fitzsimmons, Please Don't Go. It's a song about, um, it's a very sad song, acoustic guitar, about uh, directed at a missing father. Okay. Do we play it? Yes.
Okay, so why'd you pick that song? Why did I pick that song? Um, well, in general, I was feeling... I, lately, I've been in, a, in an acoustic mood. Um, and I picked that one because I thought it was an unusual subject for a song. In, a very, in, in such a direct manner. Gotcha. I, I could understand about half of what he said, so I, I cannot personally comment. Okay. Yeah, I mean... It helps that I read the lyrics first, so I knew. Oh that yes, okay, yeah. The line. vocals yeah. are sunk into the into the lyrics, and then he tends to sort of mumble the last few words of every yeah, line. So it's hard it's to. It's a typical yeah. way, you know. I I hear that a lot, um, and generally speaking, I'm not like, I, as far as I can tell, the only way to tell with artists who do that, where the music supersedes the um, voice so much, is by reading the lyrics. I, I would say follow. that that that's speaking as a big REM fan. That's not true. It's just that you have to listen repeatedly and do a certain amount of interpretation. And then by definition, the artist has to be okay with people hearing things other than what they said, right? So if you're telling, trying to tell 
a literal and concrete story, you absolutely should not sing like that, right? Yeah. Whereas if trying to be more evocative, then it's fine. Yeah. Um. Okay. So yes. Uh. Next will be. Uh, media club. It's funny. I have the I have the old podcast planner, so it's like media club, astronauts. But it's then, chess. It is chess. Yeah, we still have not finished astronauts. I um one thing that's it's a side effect of us being uh, in person is that we have not played video games right. together since we moved. But I really want it to happen, and I want to. Well, we should definitely play chess too when it comes out. It's been out for like four years. Now that it's out, we I should guess. definitely play chess too. Okay, I I own chess too, so we can play chess too if you'd like. Um. Chess. 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 So we played two games of chess, and we also read this Eurogamer article. What's it called? The article, uh, it's an article from 2013 by Christian Donlin titled, Chess 2, The Sequel, How a Street Fighting Man Fixed the World's Most Famous Game. Um, and that is, so one of the highlights of that article is that for people who are very good at chess, not for like Dylan and I, um are amateurs and we play to the best of our ability but for someone who isn't who has spent a lot of time um they know that historically speaking you know chess has gone through changes in order to main, to to be interesting um but it is they you know at some point it got locked down and now for people who are very very good at chess um it's not fun anymore it's right. in many ways it's not it's not creative yeah. and it's a memorization game it's not a good game else. in many ways like i yeah. think when, when people People who are not familiar with Board Game Geek will go look up chess and Board Game Geek and see that it gets like a 6.3 out of 10, right? And people will be like, oh my god, these ridiculous people, how could you give, you know, the great game 6.3 out of 10? And I think one thing the article addresses is that chess has all of this cultural baggage attached, where we think of chess and the grandmasters and the Cold War and this sort of this game, it's it sort of as a stand-in for the most brilliant intellectual pursuit, right? When at the end of the day, chess is a board game. And there's a lot of other board games, and you can compare it to other board games, right? And that, as you know, the chess has been designed sort of communally over, over thousands of years in yeah. various different formats um, to meet different needs of different uh, cultures. And that, But one thing that happened is there was a time in the past, I think because in some sense nobody owned chess, that people would just introduce um, alternate modes of play or ch- rule changes, and they would sort of percolate throughout the community because people were like, oh, yeah, that's better. That's more interesting. Um, but that as we came to deify chess, we were kind of like, oh, you can't change this. It, 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 right. We started developing international or chess organizations and things that didn't allow that sort of organic creation. I would say, I mean, I don't know if you thought about yeah. this at all, but when I think of the Duke, I think of that as in some ways yes. a response to the fact that you can't mess with chess. Yes, yes. So there's a game that I like that's one of my favorite two-player games called The Duke. And on paper, it looks a lot like chess, which is that it's a game where you, you start the game with a king and two footmen, which are kind of two basic pieces, um, and you win the game by killing the other person's king. And it's on a grid, and you take turns, and you can move one piece at a time. And, you know, it's kind of the basic of chess. What The Duke does is that... Every turn, instead of just moving a piece, you can draw a tile out of a bag, and you get sort of a random piece. And so it breaks up. And that's not the only thing it's it It's not does. the only thing. The other major thing that it does is that every time you move a piece, you flip it, and the rules of how it moves changes. Changes, right. So it goes back and forth between two styles of moves. Right. And so it makes each piece much more, compl- more complex, but also makes the game play very different every time you play it. Exactly. And Where- it requires 
strategy and creativity and right where you have you have you have to uh improvise with what you have where the chess by definition there's no luck uh and the board starts the same every single time and there's some there's a concept i don't think the, this talked about this but i heard about this on a copy of uh this american life like 15 years ago that in the and the in in competitive chess there's this concept of something called the book have you heard of this yeah, I think, I believe what you're referring to is the thing that lists all of the endgame scenarios. All the moves and counter moves and counter and moves. So and so it moves. comes down to just Just memoriz- doing, right, doing what is understood to be the best play. And eventually, because chess does have so many states, if you play long enough, eventually you'll be off the book. You'll have reached a board state that is not recorded in a memorized scenario. And at that point, you have to be creativity. But that's pretty far down the line, you know? Um, and from based on this Eurogamer article you might not ever get there in a single game, right? You might reach end game before you reach the condition. Right. Of... And, and about half, about 50% of competitive chess games end in stalemate. There we know. Yeah. Actually slightly more than 50%, which is a, a, a state where nobody wins and it's basically a draw. Right. And that, and so what this article is about is about this guy named David Serlin, who is a game designer who, you know, is known to have a somewhat high opinion of himself, uh, who among other things rebalanced street fighter two somewhat sacrilegiously. Um, I once knew a, a a a coworker who a very chill normally coworker who who played fighting games referred to David Serlin as the worst human being on the planet, <laughs> which wow. is clearly not true. Um, he's also it's, I don't know if you made the connection. So the guy in this article, it's the same guy who made um Flash Duel. Which guy? The, so David Serlin, the guy who's re- making Chess Two, it's the same guy who made Flash Duel, the board really? game that we play. Yeah, so he's made Flash Duel, the whole Puzzle Strike universe, like. Flash Duel and um, wh- what's it called? The one that's like the chips falling at the same. Is it Puzzle Fight? Puzzle Strike? Puzzle Strike? And, and Yomi. Anyway, he's had this whole universe of people. Cool. Um, same guy. But he basically is going out to make a version of a digital version of chess with lots of different rules changes to make it less stalemate and more creative. From rules of the game, it sounds like it's sort of a mixed bag. We're definitely going to play it and let, get back to you. Um, but I thought that was interesting to think about. One of the reasons I, you know, we sort of collected picked that is to think about this game that is thought of essentially something you can't change. But then when you start taking a step back and looking at game design, is actually something you you should change. Yep. Um, but I would also say, to take moving more to the personal, what was your experience playing chess with me? I did better than I thought I would. Is the is the short version of my experience? So I lost both times, but both times I didn't lose by much. Yeah, it came and I really well. thought. That I was going to get my ass kicked. One thing that I have a problem with is reading pictures or visual literacy. So if you if you give me a picture um, and you don't give me a description of what's happening in the picture, it will take me a long time to figure out what's going on. Um, you know, that's really interesting because one thing, as someone who, you know, for briefly sort of tutored in an in a autistic classroom, one of the things you do with people with autism and other developmental disabilities is you show them pictures of things and you try to get them to tell stories about the pictures and what's happening in the picture and what changed within the picture, right? It's almost like the spot the difference thing, but like narratively. And that's, I don't know the science or understanding behind it, but that's something you do with people who you're trying to develop understanding of things. Yeah. Um, well, and I think that that's right. Um, there's, there's relational understanding. Yeah. Um, but I think for, for me, right, like, this I I've a vivid memory of my friend showing me a picture of an a car accident on the highway, and I asked several questions. And one of them I was like, "Wait, was it in a parking lot or is it not? Like, where did it happen?" Right? Even though the picture 
quite clearly has highway signs, right? And after this yeah. person was like, oh, it's on the highway, I realized I was looking at a highway, right? right. When, he, when he said but, that, but, I was but like, oh. identifying that from But the I picture. couldn't do it. I couldn't see the highway until, until he said right. highway. And one of the things that chess does, if you're playing in board, is that you have to see the lines and connections of all these pieces that's, and that's, what's protecting yes. what. And So needless to say, because visual literacy plays such an important part of the game of chess, I thought I wasn't going to do very well. Um, yeah. Uh, at it, um, but you know, I guess one of the things that um, Dylan and I might have in common when we play this game is that we don't. Our strategies are both two to three moves long. Yeah, um, if that. And I would actually say your strategy is probably a little bit farther out than mine. That I probably have better visual literacy than you. Though I sort of like you know I used to say that like you're sort of by nature like a very slow reader and you put all this effort into being a fast reader. I'm the same way. My, by nature, I actually have terrible visual literacy. So I'm going to do. And by virtue of playing a crap load of video games, I've developed a certain video, visual literacy with so, things like this. Yeah, but right. it's not natural to me. Um, so that's probably one reason why I'm not as good as you think I am. And the other one is, yeah, that for certain games, I'm not good at the, if this happens and this happens, I'm good at making the best move I can in that, in that moment. You know, I'm more Yeah, flexible. I will also say that classically speaking, even with checkers, yeah. um, I almost always, I almost always mess up at the end game. So there's something about having a lot of pieces yes. left on the board that makes it easier for me to. I think um, one of the things that I pay attention to when I'm making moves is where my pieces are relative to other pieces, and yeah. when there aren't that many pieces left, yeah, moving them by themselves it's is harder. Is harder. For and me. I will also say that for the end game, my historic weakness with playing chess was was end game like forcing stalemates and just having no idea what i'm doing so if there's so as the end approaches i actually get more conscious and probably better at the game mm -hmm. and that's probably why both yeah. times we well, i mean in both games i did like really stupid things and joanna gained a significant advantage at a certain point in the game and then i was able to sort of claw my way back come back yeah um in, in most of those cases in the first case um i knocked queen, out your queen i knocked out his got queen. In the back row and just like killed everybody yes i knocked out a bunch of people but i i got to his background knocked out a bunch of people but eventually he his queen killed my queen yeah and after that it was sort of a downhill game and the other one it was it was my experiment was traditionally i think of it the bishop as being more powerful than the knight uh -huh. and i had an experiment going to see whether having the knights and not the bishops because that was the trade we made yeah. right um i took your knights and you took my bishops yeah um you know whether whether the knights could hold their own, and they, it turns out that they could for more than for longer right. than I. Right, knights suspected. are weird in that I think we talked about this. There's this like traditional point value of chess where everything people agree that like a bishop, a pawn is worth one, and a bishop's worth three, and a rook is worth five, and people generally put right knight is like two point five asterisk, which is that knights because they move so differently from anything else in the game, it depends a lot on the player and the board state how good they are. Mm -hmm. They can be better than a bishop. They can be yeah. worse than a bishop. Yeah, um, or somebody, and people often sometimes they write them as three. Also, you just they just yeah they move around right. And I know at one point in our game you forgot that knights could jump over pieces. Right, yeah. I remember that they moved in owls, but I forgot that they couldn't that they could jump over. Yeah, over which people. is which is one of the things that makes them special. Yeah, I think what happened was I had looked up the rule for bishops and not for knights. Oh, uh, gotcha. And so in my memory, it was knights who couldn't, um, but it was yeah, actually bishops. Cool. Yeah, but one thing I, I that. I value a lot about jo Joanne, my friendship with Joanna is that 
I enjoy a wide variety of board games, but left to my own devices, I like either, like, big, heavy, long, like, five-player ridiculous things, or I like sort of one-on-one, like, tactical combat sort of games. Um, and Joanna, while in many ways, particularly in World of Video Games, that it's, like, not her thing at all, she both can play it and enjoy it and will hold her own. I mean, another example is I recently acquired Memoir 44, which is a, in, in board game terms, is ancient. It's a 2004 game that is still published today and played today. Um, and it's both a game that I think you, you enjoy, right? Yeah. You like it, and that Joanna can also kick my butt at sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the reasons why it works is because um, my interest is in playing the game to the best of my ability given what the game is doing and not really in winning at all so a very good a very well played game is a game in which my strategy reflected the game's mechanics yeah well it is not necessarily a game you're playing against the system yeah it's about it's for me the the great joy in board gaming is um discovering a system and how well it operates Okay, the chess. That was kind of random. Conversation that was chess. About chess. Chess. Yay. Chess. Okay. That was me. I'm, I'm so glad we were finally able to get that off our, off our chess. Off of our chess. Ah, ah, okay, ah. so now why don't you go first in terms of doing... Um... Uh, well, I'm supposed to do joke of the month now. Oh, do you have a joke? I don't have a joke because I forgot, but... but so you are the joke. I am the joke, but Joanna did remind me of a terrible joke. And I'm actually going to ask the audience for helping with something. When she was talking about her life being um, really intense. When yeah, it's a pretty here. terrible joke. So you, you know the one I'm talking about. No, I'm just talking no, that's about that's my that's life yes. being very intense. Um, so there's a joke where, where a guy and, – and I will say here's the thing I want the audience to help Uh-oh. with. I first heard, the, heard this joke in the opening – it's like the opening credits of a movie. And people are driving in the car, and one of them is telling this joke to the other. And I cannot remember what the movie is. Okay. So if you know the movie, email us. At email a us. A possibility of opinions at gmail.com. That's opinions, not opinions. Op- yes, thank you. Although um, we really should have made it a possibility of opinions. Stop it. No, we shouldn't have because we fixed the logo. Shut Actually, up, we up, should up. just have made it opinions at gmail.com. Yeah, whatever. I'm registering opinions at gmail.com. Be my guest. If you want to email Joanna. Um, <laughs> email email me at opinions at gmail.com and you can include all of your opinions but none of your opinions okay are you, are you actually going to register that now it's probably already taken you mean someone else probably made that typo okay it is time for your joke your horrible horrible so, joke so uh this guy this guy goes into his shrink uh you know for his regular visit and he says um you know i I've, I've been having these really re- weird dreams lately and I'm dreaming that I'm, like, transforming into different structures. And first I'm, like, a teepee, and then I'm a wigwam, and then I'm a teepee, and then I'm a wigwam. And the doctor says, oh, you know what your problem is? You're too tense. Uh, uh. You know, the first time I ever heard that joke is my dad told it to me. I'm sure he did, Because right? it's a, it's, it's a, such a dad joke. And Dylan, I adore you, but it's 100% wigwam, and it's not wigwam. Wait, whatever. You just threw the whole cho- joke into absolute chaos by saying, ah, wigwam. I'm about to wigwam you. <laughs> okay. Wigwam. Uh, so then we had, last uh, last time we had, you want to do Book Nook first or Game Corner first? I was just saying, let's so do Game, game Corner Club, first. So for Game Club, we're talking about my second favorite game of the year, The Outer Wilds. Sip of tea. So The Outer Wilds is a game that wears its influences on its sleeve, but isn't quite like anything else I've played, and doesn't fit comfortably in a single existing genre. 
So rather than trying to pigeonhole it, I'll just tell you how it plays and then a bit about why it works so well. I will say, however, that this is a game best experienced cold. I'm going to avoid any big spoilers and not spoil anything past the first hour or so of gameplay. But if you want to skip ahead, know that I highly recommend the game to anyone who A, likes solving brilliant but not overly difficult puzzles, B, enjoys the wonder of exploring alien landscapes and doing some archaeology, and C, is willing occasion to occasionally race against time and do a little backtracking. What's uh, the name of the game again? The Outer Wilds. The Outer Wilds. I'm going to say also that really obnoxiously, there is another game in development by Obsidian called The Outer Worlds. Um, if It gets very confusing. They have similar-looking things. And then both of them in separate news stories went exclusive to the, the Epic Game Store. So you, just Outer Wilds, not Outer Worlds. So during the setup, when you start the game, I'm in a little village in a pine forest, the very Pacific Northwest. I'm sitting by a campfire, a blue four-eyed alien plucking a banjo across from me. The prompt says, press X to roast marshmallow. I do so, of course. My stick wavers a little bit, and I accidentally set the marshmallow on fire. A button prompt lets me toss it and replace it, and I do, this time keeping my stick near but not in the fire. I get it golden brown, and I eat it. Um, nom. Later, I realize this has no effect on game mechanics or the story whatsoever. And just something to make you feel mo more immersed in this world. And it serves as an opening statement of intent. This is a game that will pay attention to the little things, and even when your character is in danger or you're racing against time, the tone will bend towards wonder and joy. Anyway, I talk to the alien, who really isn't an alien, because it turns out everyone in this village is the same species, and we aren't aware of any other extant sentient life. Turns out that we're very much a culture of explorers. I'm a mostly trained astronaut, and I'm preparing for the day of my first launch. My job, to go and explore our universe and translate the writings of the Nomai, a long-extinct alien race. I am not the first explorer, but I am the first with a working translator. I run around the village, talk to people, get some backstory, do some optional tutorials, and get the launch codes. I go back to my starting point and take the elevator up. There's a small spaceship here that looks like a cobbled-together lunar lander. This is functional but hardly advanced technology. I get in, I put on my spacesuit, and I launch. The launch is exhilarating. Rockets roar, the ground pulls away, and the sky slowly fades to black as I breach the atmosphere and enter outer space, and immediately begin drifting. The Outer Wilds has a full, physics-driven galaxy, and the gravity of its various bodies, combined with the inertia of your vessel, will send you careening through the universe. Fortunately, you have thrusters on all sides of your vessel, and an autopilot to help you reach bodies in convenient time. I go to the Outer Rock, a moon-orbiting timber hearth, the planet I have launched from. I have a rough landing, talk to an older astronaut who has made camp there, and explore an alien ruin, which points me to a few others. I take off and continue to explore. After not too long, I die. I don't remember exactly how, but chances are I crashed my ship into the sun or fell off a cliff. And then I see my life flash before my eyes. Everything I've done before replays rapidly in reverse up until the beginning of the game, where I'm sitting by the campfire. Everything has reset except the knowledge I have. I already know the launch codes and don't need to go get them. And thus the Outer Wilds reveals its first big formal twist, that this is sort of a Groundhog's Day roguelike, where you'll lose progress every time you die, which seems like a big bummer. I personally don't enjoy designs that harshly punish death. But the game is so joyful and there's so much to explore that I soldier on. I get better, I die less, and every time I learn new things so I don't have to backtrack. Eventually I go, I go a while without dying, and find that the universe ends in my life with it. This is the second twist. 
This isn't Dark Souls. This isn't a get good game. Death is inevitable, and you can't do anything to stop it. The good news is that you also don't actually lose any meaningful progress. This isn't an RPG. You don't level up, you don't get new items, you don't unlock new abilities. You start with everything you will ever have, and all the puzzles you'll encounter revolve around using that fixed set of abilities, which include a jetpack, a sort of listening homing device called a stereoscope, and a device that lets you launch remote-controlled probes and take pictures with them. And yet there is a real sense of progress because information is the key. Why does time keep repeating? Why is the universe ending? And is there any way to stop it? You'll explore different planets and the ruins of the Nomai, translating their writing, which is anything but dry. It's filled with character and humor, and is written in a lovely spiral language where every new tangent of conversation literally branches off from the line before. And your ship's database will record the important information you learn and connect it to each other. In fact, sometimes you'll want to die or otherwise reset the loop, because the universe is constantly in motion during its finite lifespan. Things change, with some paths covered over time and others uncovered, and you eventually realize that accessing some areas requires you to be in a certain place at a certain time. The game is full of clever puzzles, but none that are overly demanding. Because you have limited tools at your disposal, you never fall into the old, use every object on every other object, brute force mode of point-and-click adventures. And because it's a big and varied universe, if you get stuck, you can go somewhere else and return later. If there's anything bad about the Outer Wilds, it's that ultimately it does have an ending, a solution to the ultimate puzzle, and the developers have to ensure that you actually solve it properly and don't just trip over the solution. That means that at the end of the day, there is one way to win, and you need certain specific information to determine that, and to do a specific number of events in sequence. I loved the game right up until those last few hours, when the seemingly infinite possibilities began to narrow, and I hit the bottleneck of trying to find the last few bits of information I needed. Worse, once I figured out how to do it, I failed about four times in a row. There are some fiddly things you have to accomplish, and while they aren't that hard, the time pressure made me rush and make mistakes, and every time I made a mistake, I had to restart the loop and do it all over again. But I did get there, and the ending was genuinely solid, integrating the mechanics and themes of what came before, so I wouldn't let that small drawback discourage you from playing. The developers cite Myst, Majora's Mask, and Kerbal Space Program as influences, and you can clearly see those works in this game. But The Outer Wilds is wholly unique, and somehow manages to be both thrilling and relaxing in equal measure. Outer space is a dangerous place, but The Outer Wilds emphasizes the joy of discovery and the adventure exploration with death and injury just the cost of doing business. And I said, overall, I'd say The Outer Wilds is my second favorite game of 2019 so far, after Hypnospace Outlaw, which I said we will discuss in a future podcast. Uh, let me ask you something. Yeah. Go back. Can you just go back and tell me right after you say this isn't Dark Souls, what's the line right after that? Oh, sorry. Uh, this little gamer inside. Uh... Just read that couple sentences again. Uh, this isn't Dark Souls. This isn't a get good game. Okay. When you said it the first time, the get disappeared, and it sounded like you said this isn't a good game. Oh, because I, I may like, want to re- record that. Yeah, and so I just wanted to make sure that we okay. all were all on the same page. Obviously, that's not what you meant, but I just wanted to make sure Yeah, this was. isn't Dark Souls. This isn't a get good so game. So what's a and get good game? So that's spelled G-I-T, G-I-T-G-U-D, get good. And it's this, so Dark Souls is a game that has many wonderful things going for it. It's also very difficult, and one thing that happened in the culture is that Dark Souls got embraced by a group of people who kind of feel that games should be difficult and that games are too accessible and too molly coddling and things yeah. like that, right? And so Dark Souls, but it also became a very popular game because it is very good in many ways. And people would go on forums and say, hey, I'm having trouble with this boss. How do I do this? And people would say, get good, right? 
Um, there was a little bit of truth to that, which is Dark Souls requires you to sort of really develop a mastery of your character. And so a lot of bosses, there's not like, oh, you need to do this one secret trick. You really just need to get better with the mechanics of the game. But it also became this sort of obnoxious thing of people going around to each other, get good, get good, right, in that spread. So my point with the Outer Wilds was simply that this is not a game, even when you struggle, you don't need to achieve a sort of high level of mastery of lots of things, you know. That makes sense. To, to make it cool. work. All right. So now we are on to... Joanna's Book Nook. Book Nook. And here's an example of how long this has been. Do, do you remember what the last book you did for Book Nook was? I think it was Stephen Cope, Soul Friends, right? No, that was many episodes ago. What was it? The Unbearable Lightness of Beam. Oh, wow. Right? Doesn't it feel like a long time since you read that? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I'm doing, um, just because it's the last thing I read, but also something I would recommend, it's a graphic novel series called The Boys. Um, the premise, it's by Garth Ennis, and anybody who knows Garth Ennis as a writer knows that by definition you're talking about um, work that it's on the very edge of acceptable in terms of political stuff. So there's like, you know, a lot of violence and a lot of sex and a lot of questionable consent. Mm-hmm. Um, is, is that what he's, what he's sort of known for? I've, I know the yeah. name, but not he's his, a dark, his writing is dark. Yeah. Um, and it's also, you know, it's dark, but in a cynical I've been around the block kind of a way, and yeah. this is how things are, not in a sensational way as much. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but it's still sort of making an argument in that sense. Uh, I don't know. Um, so the book, the, so, the, so, you know, in keeping with this sort of dark, this is how it is theme, the premise of the boys is that it's a, it's a universe in which both superheroes and comics exist. Which, when you think about it, is unusual, right? Yes. Usually, if it's a universe where the superhero exists, it is the comic. Therefore, the yeah, comics yeah, don't exist, yes. right? And the reason for that is that in this universe, the notion of a superhero is really just optics. It's a PR stunt. There right. are people with superpowers, but they're just people with superpowers. Right. They are not lawful good. They're not necessarily good at all. They're not necessarily horrible. They're just people, right? right. And like people with power... Um, there is a tendency uh, to, uh, to not, you know, to not always use it conscientiously. And the way that these superheroes are portrayed in, the, in these comic books aren't necessarily as evil, right? They're not super villains. They're just people who have powers who are kind of selfish. and They're kind very of, privileged, as we would say. Yeah, they're just people, you yeah. know. Um, and the boys is a group of people who are in charge of sort of, disciplining or keeping the superheroes from doing from doing things that are truly evil just because they can yeah which is notedly different than because they're evil it's right. because they could right. and they might not give a shit right? right so i will tell you the opening scene right one of the interesting things about this series of comics is that the main character whose name is huey the artwork is specifically meant to evoke simon Pegg. so it's huh. simon Pegg in the comic books and he writes the foreword huh. um but so huey it begins, Huey's on a date with his girlfriend, and, um, and she tells him that she loves him for the first time, and he's overwhelmed, and he's very happy. And then a superhero in the middle of a job for the government runs through them, you know, while they're embracing, and tears her apart, literally tears her apart. So he's left holding her arms, yeah. and her body's, like, sprayed Just because everywhere. he's, like, physically run through her. Yeah, because he's a superhero, yeah. and he has that, right? And then, you know, he's, he's, on, he's, he's on a superhero quest, so he's yeah. technically fixing something while yeah. he does this, right? And then he's talking to the cops, 
and he and he turns to one of them and he goes okay which way is america and, mm. and the guy points he goes america's that way and he's like thanks and he runs off again right he doesn't know where he is in the world he doesn't really know what he's doing he has no he's not paying any attention to anybody else um and it's this notion of superheroes again not superheroes who wake up in the morning and are like i'm excited about being evil but superheroes who just don't give a shit because they're not really heroes they're people that were engineered to have superpowers and then in addition to that as you might imagine the institutional vying for control over that right so there's corporations and there's the government and everybody wants you know everybody wants to have that the the marketing power the marketing power and the right. in the capital and the income that comes from everyone wants to be disney from having them at your disposal yeah. in this case there's a lot of national security right. um contractors who are interested right um so that's that's sort of the premise and it's very interesting and it's full of a lot of power play which i like a lot um I would not say that this is like a great literary achievement, right? However, the reason why I'm reading it right now is that at the end of July, they're coming out with a miniseries of it. And so probably a lot of people will watch it. Um, but Who's they? I don't remember what channel. But it's the guy who did SP, uh, Supernatural is writing okay. this. So I know that that's the head writer. But I can't which I, which I guess is not surprising it. because from what you're describing to me, makes this sound like very in vogue with contemporary television tastes right like, right exactly um and so um i was like let me let me read this before you know it hits the television um and um it's interesting because i did something similar except in the opposite order with jessica jones i watched the first season of jessica jones yeah and then they were coming out with the second season i was like let me get the omnibus and just read the whole thing and in both cases um, well, at least in the case of Jessica Jones, I was more impressed with the comic than I was with the show. And yeah. one of the things that I'm worried about with the boys going to television is that um, the way that the way that television culture works right now, um, the way that grittiness on television yeah. works right now is a lot more sensational than it is. Yes. And, you know, in Garth Ennis's work, it's not that he's not trying to show off. It's not that the things that are happening aren't sensational in and of themselves. It's just that they're not you know they're the not focus. pitted that way yeah. right and on television it often is yes. right and that you know so i would say that if you start watching the boys and you're like man this is really difficult to watch yeah. um or you know i don't like the way that they're sensationalizing this but in general you don't have an issue consuming dark material which i know some people do so this certainly isn't going to be for you if you're just someone who never wants to read you know, yeah. Um, but, scenes where women get objectified, or scenes, right. you know, that you just don't ever read it. But if you're somebody who is who has a certain cynicism, but also who doesn't need it to be like splashy, uh, I would recommend. I would recommend the boys. Well, Mike, one one question for you would be that for me, when I've you know dipped my toe in Marvel and DC, both the comics and the films, something. My my primary objection to them is that well, however well polished they are that i often find that there's no there there there's kind of nothing to say there's not a complete story there's not and would you say that with this comic even if it's not great literature that there's it has a certain amount of you know hefter character yeah i would say the premise itself right yeah this notion because it's engaging with with an actual well you know and this notion that super heroics are you know might just be a pr stunt right that there is right. no such thing as a superhero there's only the image of a superhero right. that's a very interesting idea right you know which is um, something that something like marvel actively avoids yeah and I, I will say that i um i 
have a certain amount of sympathy for this notion of the, the anti-hero. And yeah. certainly you heard me talking about it not long ago when you I was see, going... Particularly since you identify as an anti-hero. You heard me talking about it not long ago when I went on and on about how, what, what, how people should relate to yes. each other, right? So, like, certainly this falls into that category. Um, you know, I'm not saying that it's, like, the best thing I've read all year or of whatever. Course. It's a bunch of comic books. But they're good and they're worth yeah. reading. You know, cool. I just... I will say that there's 12 volumes and i have read five because that's the number that are available in print from the library mm. and now i have to either read them digitally or throw some money at them well i would say you can also do one of another thing which is that you can ask the library to get them and or use zip books remember that's true but i, I would say volumes one through five including link right so yeah. then i would have to do something else to get the six through twelve right no but saying, we'll, we'll yeah. talk about that off podcast that but sounds you can, good you can get them um okay and so that that would be the boys that's that's book nook okay well, well, that we we went through that part at a decent clip. Now we just have outro, the end. What? Okay, I think it's worth mentioning because we haven't said it explicitly yet that we're phasing out what we previously thought of as JP on the podcast. Yeah. Um, and part of that is because we're moving to mini so it's but part of that is that we're having trouble coming up with a structure for JP. We. Well, we yeah, and so I'm thinking about it. Um. And I'm gonna put some effort into thinking about like what it might look like going forward. The plan is for me to write. Uh, I mean, to write it up. So we did come up with the structure for JP. I'm just saying, like, I feel like a listener might be like, "Wait, what happened to all those achievements and badges?" And like, you. But had neither a of us section. really remembers what it is, right? That's the issue. Is that if we could reproduce that text, we would be fine, right? Well, I mean, it's 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 literally on the podcast, right? But I think one of the things that one of the issues we had when we were talking about it for this podcast is that neither of us was really clear on what it was, right? In the end, if we knew, it wouldn't have been a big deal. Um, so, so in any event, we have to restructure it um, from what it was in college, basically, and that that's a whole that's that's a challenge in the upcoming in the upcoming um, uh, weeks. But for the meantime, it's not going to be on the podcast. Okay. Yep. Um, so anyways, in the meantime, we're sort of putting a, a hold on JP. Um, and in the future, we are hopefully doing mini-sodes. So go ahead and send us your recommendations. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a possibility of opinions at gmail.com. Okay. And we'll see you then. All right. Bye, guys.